Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Tilted Lawyer Podcast on February 16th in the year of our Lord, 2024. We are here to conclude our deep dive into the Gypsy Rose saga that has taken us from Munchausen by proxy uh, to stories of autism to ultimately the murder of Dee Dee Blanchard. This morning, as a response to all of you who have questioned Gypsy Rose's involvement and how much she should actually be punished and whether or not she's actually a victim, we're going to explore whether or not Gypsy Rose is actually a fraud as opposed to a legitimate victim of everything that we've talked about over the last, oh, four or five hours or so. But you're going to want to stick around because we're going to talk about all of it coming up next. Let's get started. Whatever you might be going through and wherever you might be, this is Omar Serrato with the Tilted Lawyer Podcast. I'm here to take your mind off of things. Yes, I'm an attorney. No, I'm not giving you legal advice. I'm going to sit and talk like people as these are the candid thoughts of one practicing attorney and it's after hours. So have a seat. Feel free to have a drink and join me. Let's get started. Let's rock and roll. I forgot to mention, as a special guest appearance, making her debut on the Tilt Lawyer podcast is my little sister, Nessa Medina, who is here to fill in for the very sickly Ileana Clone Rosa, who was sick with, who knows, man, as she's living in a, a Petri dish of germs with her new four-month-old baby. I know how that is, uh, with all the germs that got rolling around in my house, but Welcome, Ness. Hello, hello. Glad to be here. Good morning to you. Good morning. So, all right. So before I start my uh, analysis of Gypsy Rose the Fraud, uh, what are your opinions on this lady? So she's had, I mean, she's been in the news really since 2015. And if you really want to be technical about it since Hurricane Katrina, going all the way back to 2005 and our introduction to her, as we've already discussed, was that of a sickly child. And her mother was putting her up there and collecting donations and Make-A-Wish Foundation, all these different things. They got themselves into a brand new house. They became very famous in the news until come to find out, well, Dee Dee Blanchard was murdered at the hands of her boyfriend. Initially, investigators thought that this was like a murder, kidnapping, and everybody's very concerned about where Gypsy was. And then we come to find out that she was in on it, and it was the biggest shock of everybody's experience with this case when they saw her walking into her arraignments for the criminal charges. Mm -hmm. It's like, what? So she's not in a wheelchair. She could actually walk. And then you get to the whole story and then this the subsequent planning of the murder, the actual murder uh, at the hands of her boyfriend, Nicholas Godijan. And we're going to spend a great deal of time talking about him and his story today. But what are your thoughts about Gypsy? What do you think of all of this? I mean, I believe that I when I first heard of the case, I believed in her innocence and, you know, how could anyone be living through that and you not feel bad for her entirely but at the end of the day she's got she learned it from some from the best i would say she yeah. learned manipulation apple doesn't fall far from the tree so sometimes it does you know sometimes if it's a downhill slope <laughs> it depends yeah. well your i mean that was kind of the prosecution's fear when they were deciding what they were going to do with gypsy they charged with second degree mm -hmm. the minimum sentence for second degree murder in that state was 
of, of Wisconsin was 10 years, which is what she ultimately pled to. Their fear was she didn't want to, they didn't want to be confronted with a sympathetic jury that was ultimately going to acquit her because of all the many years of abuse that at that point in time was really unchallenged. Nobody had really considered, well, I take that back. It was considered mm -hmm. that perhaps there was some fraud going on with the medical stuff. But the way that it was presented to the public, they weren't going to hear medical fraud. They weren't going to hear fraud from the doctors. They weren't even going to consider whether or not Gypsy was involved in the fraud. As um, I mentioned earlier this morning, the Good Wives Club have is an organization that has done extensive investigation into the medical claims okay. of Dee Dee and Gypsy, and they have a lot to say about it. And we are going to talk all about their findings, which are problematic for a couple of reasons, and I will explain. But their fear was, we're going to get this girl on trial, and she's going to wind up with a sympathetic jury, and good luck getting all 12 jurors to agree that we're going to find her guilty and, you know, whatever. And so they just say, hey, plead now, and we'll give you 10 years. But you should also be aware, the people should also be aware, that she was not the only one that was offered a deal. They had offered Nicholas a deal. They offered him a plea, first degree murder, 25 years, and then you could you could get out. Kind of the same kind of a deal, which if you are keeping score, if Gypsy was the mastermind behind the murder of her mom and Nicholas was the tool that was used essentially to conduct the murder, seems fair. Yeah. And I was talking about to Nicholas, Nicholas, Ileana last week about whether or not well, I mean, it's really difficult to kill things. And I asked her the question, what's the largest animal that you've ever killed? I ask you the same question. It's the same answer. An insect. I don't think I've... A bug. A bug. So it takes... A, have you ever been in a physical fight? I've, I've pushed around. <laughs> <laughs> have I hit anybody? No, I've never hit anybody. you pushed around? I've pushed around. Have you ever punched anybody in the face? No. Have you ever been punched in the face? No. Well, good for you. Yeah, well. Terrific. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot different thing when you are in, even in combat sports, hurting somebody. Mm -hmm. Like, usually when I'm against in fights in the schoolyard and, like, in, you know, later on in competition, wrestling and all of that. You know, you, you brawl and you're trying to kill each other and choke each other and, you know, all that kind of stuff and strangulation. But then afterwards, you're friends and you go and you... You're, you hug it out and you're friends afterwards. But to actually take the life of somebody is a different thing altogether. And he took a knife that was stolen by a gypsy out of a Walmart. And if yeah. you saw pictures of it, Dominic will throw in a picture, but it was like this little jagged edged, it looked like a Peter Pan knife. Like, you remember the Peter Pan, <laughs> the dagger? Yeah. The only difference would have been like there was like this jagged edge to it and it was like hollowed out in the middle. So when you would insert it, it would do maximum damage when you would pull it out. It was a very messy. He stabbed this lady 17 times. He nearly decapitated the head off of her body. And if you, there's been multiple different accounts. So what happens afterwards? If you heard Gypsy tell it the first time, I was raped. If you heard uh, Nicholas uh, talk about it, it's like, oh, then we had sex. And then she was cleaning the house naked. And there was like, it was their, 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 their accounts are kind of all over the place. Yeah. But 
I think there's been a lot of backlash against Gypsy specifically because if you really dive in to who Nicholas was, and let's talk about him. So who was he? At the time that the murders come in, I think he was like 23, 24 or something like that. Uh, don't quote me on that. He might have been older, uh, younger, but diagnosed autistic. Mm -hmm. To what degree of autism? And you, as you know, there's a wide spectrum. Mm -hmm. And as you know, your niece, Olivia, has been diagnosed yeah. as autistic. And when I hear these diagnoses, it's very difficult for me to place any significant value on them without observing the person that was diagnosed mm -hmm. because Olivia was diagnosed as severely autistic. Yeah. What does severely mean? If you think about a worst case scenario, literal physical and mental impairments. Mm -hmm. And really what autism is, is a wiring of the brain that is not up to par with what normal people would have. Undiagnosed people would have. And I want to say normal. Most people are not... Yeah. The average brain. On average. Yeah. It's just a different wiring of the brain. Yeah. That wiring could um, manifest itself in many different ways. Some people have lacked the ability to speak. Some people lack the ability to um, operate in normal society. Some people are freaking geniuses. Yeah. Like the Elon Musk case. And in the case of Olivia, she was diagnosed as severely autistic, but then the doctor's like, hey, but you never know. Like when she gets to be high school age, you might not even know that she was autistic. And sure enough, I mean, she's about to turn five years old now. She's been in school mm -hmm. for about a year, year and a half, preschools and things like that. Any concerns about her inability to speak have long been long gone. Yeah. Long gone. She is a very deft, yeah. capable speaker. She's very creative. She's very sophisticated in some of her thoughts. And I think that the only pushback that most people would have, mostly her teachers, well, she doesn't listen to anybody. She kind of just drifts off in her own world and does her own thing. So, yeah, I do that, too. Yeah, me, too. Every day. Lots of people are like that. <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of most four or five-year-olds. Yeah. But if you didn't know that she was autistic because I told you that, you'd have no idea that there was anything wrong with totally. her. She's just like a normal kid. But what's, what's, what's more is that back in, like, say, the 80s, 70s, 60s, Autism was not really a thing mm -hmm. that was understood on any relevant level, relevant level, or a basic level, really. Yeah. It was just, you know, diagnosed as behavioral issues. So with Olivia, what was I even talking about? Where, do, where was I going? You would with never this? know. Oh, you, you wouldn't know that she was autistic. She wouldn't have any inclination anything was wrong with her other than behavioral issues. Mm -hmm. So Nicholas... I think the most heartbreaking thing to listen to or observe in this case was the interrogations. I don't know if you've ever caught wind of the interrogations or had an opportunity to observe, but he was interrogated by the by law enforcement yeah. and he gave a very honest accounting of what, I mean, it was very, yeah, I killed her. I was in love with a gypsy and I did it. And then he's like talking about his multiple personalities and he's very respectful to the officers. Honestly, he seemed like a sweet kid. Yeah. You heard his mom describe, well, they brought her in. She gave about a 30-minute interview with law enforcement just about what did she know. It was like, I didn't know anything. And it was, it was literally her finding out that her son just did this thing. Mm -hmm. She talks about Gypsy and is like, yeah, I didn't like that girl. 
I didn't trust her. I didn't want her. She, she was just kind of weird. She wanted to stay over and I was polite to her, but I was looking at her sideways. As, mm. I'm, of course, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. But she had suspicions about Gypsy. But she, the way that she described her son was, he's like the sweetest kid. He wouldn't hurt a fly. He's um, loyal. Um, yeah, he's got his behavioral issues, but that's why we try to do certain things to keep him out of trouble. The problem with it was um, he had this entire um, online persona that he cultivated over many years. Specifically, specifically, I mean, not specifically with Gypsy, but prior to meeting her, he had this idea that he had these multiple personalities. Mm. I know a lot of you, here's the thing. I know this is coming in the comments. I know that it's coming in the comments. Lots of you have heard many different things about what's the story with Nicholas, what's the story with Gypsy, things that have been alleged to be true in this case that are not substantiated. There's a lot of different competing theories out there. And so I can't get into what all of the, the, the different trails of whatever people think of Nicholas are. I just know this is what came out of trial. Mm -hmm. Many of you are going to come out, I'm sure, with stories that may or may not corroborate and, or things that you may have heard. Just be careful about what's out there because a lot of what's out there is purely speculation. The one alternate opinion that is counter to Gypsy being the ultimate victim, you know, in this courageous story of overcoming Munchausen by proxy at the hands of her mother, Dee Dee Blanchard, was this organization called the Good Wives Club that was started by one of the people that was in her documentary, the last one. Oh, wow. Okay. Actually, I'm not sure if it was the Prison Confessions documentary or one of the ones that came out like in 2018 or 2017, mm -hmm. but she was at one point in time an advocate for Gypsy trying to tell the story. She's done a lot of subsequent research and now she's completely turned on the entire family. She's got a lot to say. Mm. So we're going to dive into that. Mm. And the only reason I bring that up is because I don't know a lot of what's factual with Nicholas. The only things that I've seen that I've been able to corroborate through my own independent analysis, investigation, that was not the opinion of some other person, was what came out in trial. He was diagnosed as level two autistic. He had an IQ of about 82, which doesn't put him as mentally impaired. It places him as a below average intelligence individual. Yeah. Think Forrest Gump. Yeah. Maybe to that level. Um, so have you considered the idea that Nicholas is deserving of much more sympathy in this case than perhaps Gypsy Rose? Oh, absolutely. What are your opinions on that? I mean, I feel like he was just immediately painted out to be the bad guy. But also, I mean, they were both able to be manipulated with everything that they had going on in their in their own minds. I feel like we should be looking at them the same. Not one is worse than the other. Um, Agreed. Yeah. The problem with that is uh, Gypsy from the time uh, that you know, this all came out, people were very sympathetic towards her, believing that she was uh, severely abused to the point where all the stories that you've heard mm -hmm. about her, you know, the feeding tube and the unnecessary surgeries and the yeah. teeth rotting out of her head because of unnecessary medications. Well, 
the jury is still kind of out on the veracity of all of that. Mm -hmm. We don't really know what exactly went on, but people have been suggesting that Didi was perpetrating a fraud on the medical community, mm -hmm. that the doctors were in on it, and that Gypsy was somehow in on it, which is ridiculous to posit as a possible truth in, in everything that's going on. Because from the time that she was born, from the time that they that Dee Dee sat her in that wheelchair, it's not like Gypsy didn't know that she couldn't walk. She could walk. Yeah. She didn't walk because Dee Dee was, there was consequences. Yeah. If you get up out of that wheelchair, there's going to be consequences and repercussions. I will say, to quote one of my favorite movies, I will say that one of the strangest parts about the whole medical account is... When she's with the neurologist, Flasterstein, I think it was, he asked her to stand up and there's competing versions of the story. At mm -hmm. first, Gypsy says, I did stand up and mom flipped out. And then the, the, the latest version, no, I didn't stand up and mom flipped out anyway. I don't know what happened. Yeah. But the doctor, I kind of believe his account where I forget whether he said he stand up or not, but he basically doubted the, diag the diagnosis that she was, that Didi was claiming that Gypsy was saddled with. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense that she has muscular dystrophy. It doesn't make, there's no reason why this young girl can't walk. Yeah. And so I need more facts. And then the whole thing, well, why didn't you report her to a CPS or the authorities? And well, cause I didn't have enough proof. And I've talked at length about, yeah. um, it's not his job to prove anything. It's his job to, to raise the suspicion if he thinks it's a reasonable one mm -hmm. and let the authorities make the final invest, whatever. He didn't do his job. <clears throat> I have openly wondered on previous episodes dealing with Gypsy Rose whether or not there were lawsuits coming against the medical establishment, against the doctors who had treated her. So far, that's not in the works, mysteriously enough. Some people in the comments have suggested, well, that's because there's not a lawyer that would take her case, which I kind of beg to differ on that. I've seen lawyers take all kinds of cases. Yeah. Um, Get their name out there. There's not a chance that there is not a lawyer that is unwilling to take a high-profile case such as Gypsy Rose mm -hmm. and go after the medical establishment if for no other purpose than to gain the notoriety and adulation that comes with being involved in a high-profile case like that. Mm -hmm. Not to mention, you're probably looking at a seven-figure settlement. It's insane. Even if there's not any evidence to back up her claims, there's not a chance in hell that there are no lawyers that are ready and willing to take your case. Yeah. That's not a thing. No chance. Even if Gypsy said that at some point, I don't know where this commenter got it from, but it's been suggested. Yeah. All I'm saying is to suggest that Gypsy was somehow profiting, let's just say there was fraud going on. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody's disputing that. DD was 100% defrauding yeah. the medical whether or not the doctors are in on it, I don't know. But what did Gypsy have to gain from any of this? To be a prisoner in her mom's house? To be subject to her mom's wishes, which is that she's going to remain this sickly little person? Mm -hmm. And at the time, in 91, back in 2005, she or, or two, 2015, that would have put her at 15 plus 9. 24 years old. 24. So here is a young lady. She had designs on wanting to break free from mom. 
She wanted to have boyfriends and things. There was a couple of attempts to escape, and every single time it was thwarted. And even this latest one, she tried to make it legit. Like, oh, we're just all going to randomly meet at the movie theaters. Mm-hmm. The problem was that Nicholas was not very socially adept, and she kind of creeped out Dee Dee. And that didn't work out. And so it's this thing where I'm trapped by my mom. I'm never going to be able to break free. She clearly wasn't getting any money. She's having to steal money from her mom. Yeah. And so if you're following the money in this, what portion of the money is going towards Gypsy? And, you know, I'm not excusing her for planning and and, and conspiring to murder her mom. Of course, she had a role in that. She's done her time. But to suggest, as the Good Wives Club do, that she's in on the fraud is kind of preposterous. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't have, what would she have to gain, if anything, at all? She's just being. She was over it. Yeah. Look, in 2005, she gained a new housing. That was great. Yeah. Congratulations. You got a new house, you got all this stuff. She wasn't really benefiting from any of it. She was the one having to go through all the surgeries, whether or not they were necessary or not or required. Mm-hmm. I don't know. She was the one being painted out as a sickly person. I've, I've spoken at length about why she's a sympathetic figure in that case, and, and it's obvious. But let's yeah. talk about let's talk about Nicholas. Let's talk about Nicholas. So at first glance, our first introduction to go to John was as came with the knowledge that he murdered Dee Dee Blanchard mm-hmm. with all the grisly details. When he presented in court, he lacked emotional affect. Mm-hmm. He looked scary. He was bearded. I mean, his mugshot, he looks like this very, if you were to, if you were to paint a picture of, uh, I want you to paint a picture of, uh, one of the scariest faces out of your nightmares. Well, Nicholas might have been. I'd be scared. Yeah, that's a scary looking yeah. face. And then as he presented in trial, he was bearded and he had shaved his head. He, he looked menacing, sinister. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at him in the context of he murdered somebody, that's a scary looking person. But when you hear him talk, when you hear him, when I heard him speak with the interrogators, He also gave an interview with a a TV journalist. He's given subsequent interviews since then. But every single time I've heard him speak, he's polite. Mm -hmm. I don't paint him as um, mentally incapacitated. What's the word? Disabled. Disabled. He doesn't come off as a disabled person. He doesn't come off as like super genius either. But I wouldn't think that he was mentally impaired or like there was something wrong with him if I were to meet him in person to just yeah. talk with him. If he has low IQ, fine. There's lots of people out there that have that that make a living with those restrictions mm-hmm. and do just fine for themselves. But he didn't come off. I mean, he was polite. He was he he seemed like a sweet kid. Yeah. I'll tell you what. The dad portion of me looks at a kid like Nicholas Godejohn as he's being interrogated and in his subsequent uh, jailhouse interviews and sees that, you know, there's a world where Nicholas might have grown up to be like this really genius level carpenter or like a plumber or like an electrician or some kind of like high uh, service-based um, really important job serving the community, something like that. Mm -hmm. Those folks make like six figures. 
they do really well for themselves. And you know what? In another life, if I wasn't a lawyer and all this other stuff, um, you know what my retirement plan is? My, my retirement plan is I want to move up to the mountains and uh, go chop wood and become a <laughs> carpenter. That's my retirement plan. It's a pretty good one. Let's yeah. see how that works. But something where it keeps you occupied yeah. and, you know, just you're not having to deal with all these people that are constantly judging, um, which is kind of a, sorry, apologize for fixing my mic. The kind of profession that I feel like would have suited him spectacularly. Yeah. I see a world where he goes to the army, maybe spends a couple of years in there, learns some discipline because the people that were going to influence him the most were going to be the people that got a hold of him in his formative years, his, his late teens, his early teens, whatever, his early adulthood and shape and mold who he was going to be. The problem with that was he spent most of his life online. People online are maniacs. Insane. It's only gotten worse, unfortunately. You know, I did the Natalia Grace case. I did six episodes on it. Mm -hmm. I spoke for probably 12 to 15 hours on Natalia Grace and all of the stuff that was going on with her. And you remember her, that she was re-aged the orphan and all yeah. this stuff and the yeah, abuse. Yeah. And one listener, he wanted to plant his flag in um, I Was Mean to Rachel Ambler, the, the neighbor that, uh, <laughs> that was interviewed on TV. I don't know, but he said that you were being mean to her and condescending or, or said something like that. Yeah. And then I said, Listen, look, Dave, <laughs> why don't you come on in? We could have a beer. We could talk about it. I'm not mad at you. You know, I get that you have, but here's what I try to explain my opinion. And I did this whole five minute segment and included that in. And then his response was, I didn't ask you to do that. You were backpedaling. At least I know where you really stand. You were mean to Rachel. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I've been talking for 15 hours on this case, and your one takeaway was that you were mean. for all of that was Rachel Ambler. <laughs> I have nothing to say. I have nothing more to say. Nothing more to say. It sounds like you hit a soft spot. Oh, for Dave? For Dave. Well, just because, just because uh, I kind of gave him the benefit of the doubt. If we're yeah. going to, all right, bring it in. Let's bring in the conversation. Am I being mean to Rachel? Let's talk about it. Yeah. Uh, why do you think that? You know, and my whole thing was she was saying one thing when she was confronted with Christine. And then Natalia gets here to confront her about what happened to her. And all of a sudden she wants to be Natalia's best friend. Yeah. So how yeah. would you describe that other than, you know, you're basically a coward. If you said certain things back then mm -hmm. when she's asking you about them, they'll own up to them. But yeah. she didn't. It's like, oh, if I knew all of that, what would have swooped you up and all of the stuff? It's like, but that's not okay. Because literally the segment before, she's talking about how Natalia was like this evil little kid. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. All of a sudden. Yeah. I'm getting off track. Sorry. Right. So, Nicholas, there, there's a world where he is a rousing success. In the, the solitude of whatever life he wanted to create for himself, he just needed the right mentor. But here comes Gypsy Rose. They meet in 2012 on this website called ChristianDatingForFree.com. I have a Christian background, mm -hmm. um, as do you. Yeah. No offense to anybody <laughs> that is Christian. Of course. But my experience with organizations like that that are online is people are maniacs you never know 
what kind of crazy stuff you're going to get. I'm sure there's a lot of well-intentioned people out there, but every now and then you're going to run into a gypsy rose who is a victim of Munchausen by proxy, who has this weird whole backstory that is straight out of a horror flick, Stephen King novel that is wanting to conspire to find a way to rid herself of her wicked mother, Dee Blanchard, so she can free herself mm-hmm. and become Cinderella or Rapunzel yeah. or whoever it is, which is what this young man stumbled upon. They meet in 2012. Look, there's three years of social media communications between the two of them. There is very limited text message I haven't found any transcripts of the text messages. I have found like stuff where they show photographs of what yeah. was displayed in trial about the communications between them back and forth. It's very clear to me that Nicholas developed his online persona. He was grotesquely in love with the gypsy. He would have done anything for her. He told anybody that would listen, the interrogators, law enforcement, I just wanted to be safe. I'm really in love with her. I would do anything for her and you know, all this kind of yeah. stuff. And then Gypsy comes along as, would you really do anything? Yeah. Would you kill my mother? And she didn't say that specifically, but. I think he, yeah, he was just in love. He was just a, a, I mean, he was just in love. He was willing to do anything to prove that, I believe. He could have fallen in love with anybody. Yeah. Uh, but he chose this one person that would give him attention because he's not socially adept. I imagine that he had problems talking to girls. Mm-hmm. That's a thing. I had problems talking to girls before. It's something that young men experience. Every young man has to go through. If you're a young man and you choose to talk to women, well, one of the things you're going to have to learn is how do you even talk to these people? that They're so foreign. They're so different from men. Yeah. It's just not like, look, I talk to Dominic a certain way. I don't talk to you that way. Well, sometimes I do, but you're my sister. Well, apparently you sing mariachi. I don't. I didn't know oh, that was so a that, thing. Oh, so that whole story. <laughs> it was just a weird thing that it did. It's like I don't know how to talk to girls, and it's like you know when you're when you first start talking to women, it's very perplexing. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you my first experience that I can remember in my mind of me being rejected by a woman. I was so confused. I was so confused. <laughs> So most young men, here's what happens. Dominic, maybe you could, maybe you could relate. <laughs> but you grow up your whole life, and as you're growing up, it's oh, he's such a cute little boy. It's like, oh, he's gonna be a heartbreaker when he grows up. And everybody says that about every young man that's ever existed. Yeah. It's like, oh, he's so cute. And then you get to be about, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, and everybody, all this positive affirmation. If you're lucky, you got a supportive family. Yeah. And then I went up to this girl. I remember I was like maybe 14. It was my first week of freshman year of high school. Okay. So literally just turned 14. I'm, I'm you know, baby faced the whole thing. You saw pictures. Yes. But I go up to this girl. She was the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. It's like, oh my goodness gracious. But this one, I was in journalism class. I don't remember what her name was, but she was a senior in high school. Oh, boy. And so I just walked up to her. I was like, I'm going to go talk to that one. <laughs> I picked that one. And then <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how it came out. But what I basically said was like, hey, do you want to be my girlfriend? 
<laughs> and then she like literally laughed at me. It's like, <laughs> little boy, how old are you? You don't even know me. And she thought it was the cutest thing. And I was like, so confused. Like, why didn't that work out? Why didn't that work? Why didn't she say yes? Because it would, you know, I was like this dorky little kid, My 14 mom says years old. I'm cute. Yeah, come on now. Everybody told me I was supposed to be the heartbreaker. So let me come and break your heart then. Yeah. <laughs> huh? But no, that didn't didn't work. So I had to come up with this whole thing. And you, as you're growing and you're maturing into that, you know, it's like it's almost like what's that movie with? The, oh, that movie. What's the what's the movie, Dominic? With that guy, you just gotta have skills. I got good skills. Well, I got nunchuck skills. I got drawing skills. You remember that one? Napoleon Dynamite. Oh, That's Napoleon what. Dynamite. <laughs> yeah. Love that movie. I could relate yes. so much because he's going up to this late this girl. It's like, oh, you think you were Napoleon? Well, it was similar. <laughs> it was parallel to that. Me asking that girl out to be my girlfriend was the equivalent of him. It's like, oh, I just need skills. What could I do? Well, I'm pretty good at drawing, and so he draws her a picture yep. and presents it to her, and it's like this weird face. <laughs> like, <laughs> Mom makes her go out with Napoleon. I didn't even get that. I didn't even get like the pity. Oh, just go out with him. He's a nice boy. Try it out. <laughs> So well, look at you now. It all, it all worked. Well, it all worked out. But my whole point in even bringing that up, oh, the whole mariachi thing. I'm not saying that I was a good mariachi singer. I never heard it, so I can't. But it was one of these things in Spanish class, <laughs> like for extra credit. If you sing this mariachi song, and I did, and like all the girls, like, oh, that's so cute. It's like, oh, I'm need to capitalize on this. <laughs> so, so I think when you hit five thousand subscribers. That's what we're doing. Nope, nope, nope. I think it's a, I think it's a, first of all, that's not a contract. I've never consented. I've never assented to that. throwing out something over there. <clears throat> so that, this is, I imagine Nicholas, this is the world he's growing up in. Yeah. And he's autistic and it's a different degree, you know, because I didn't have, pro I mean, everybody has social issues, but they inevitably grow out of them. Yeah. There were doctors that said that basically at trial it came out that he's always going to be about 15, 16 years old. Mm -hmm. 15, 16 years old is not, I mean, you could talk to, you know, intelligent 15 to 16 year olds and get by. They just lack life experience. They're naive. And this guy was incredibly naive. Nicholas was. Um, imagine him trying to talk to girls like, hey, so uh, big gulp, huh? <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I'm thinking about that scene in Dumb and Dumber where he's coming out. Hey, big gulps. <laughs> hey, guys. Oh, big gulps, huh? All right. Well, see you later. <laughs> All right. See you later. <laughs> That's probably what it was like. Um, but yeah, he's he's trying to find his way. Nobody's giving him attention. And uh, he is um, probably attracted to the opposite sex he wants to have a girlfriend he wants to do all of this and he's getting older he's at this point he was about the same age as gypsy about 23 24 25 years old and he's, he's living with his mom and they've keeping him shelter and the only place that he has a avenue a venue 
that is not going to judge him wholeheartedly by his physical appearance or by his weird social anxieties that manifest in these weird tics is by creating these online personas. So he, and I don't know, there was probably others, but the famous one is Victor the Vampire, 500 years old, and he's the guy that essentially... If I were sitting in a uh, therapist chair and I don't have a PhD in psychology or anything, but it seems like he had built up a good amount of frustration at his inability to connect with people on a human level the way that he wanted to. And so how does that manifest is severe anger and frustration, but he doesn't want to be that way. He wants to be a good person because his mom loves him and he experienced the love of his parents. And, you know, he has love in his heart. He wants to give love to people, but he's so angry. Well, how does he reconcile the two? The only way is, well, it's not me. It's Victor. Victor is the one that's responsible for all of these evil thoughts that I have and the anger that I want to lash out with and... If I need something to happen, such as Gypsy has asked me to save her from her evil mom, I can't do it myself. I'll get Victor to do it, and then it'll be safe. And so I can only imagine the mental machinations that were going through his head when he's going through all of this. Now, look, there's a whole three-year grooming process that occurs between 2012 and 2015 between Gypsy and Nicholas. If you read the text message exchanges from trial, and I'm not going to rehash them here because I don't have the time, but there are certainly questionable things that he says, and there are also unsubstantiated things that he says. Like, for example, one of the things that Gypsy says in her latest documentary was he would bring up like these fantasies, like we're going to run away together and get married, and then we're going to have a kid, and on, on her 13th birthday, I shall take her virginity. I don't know if Nicholas ever said that or not, but there's something that Gypsy says that he said. It's hearsay. It's inadmissible in court. However, but that's her claim. If he was saying stuff like that, that would creep me out. She says Mm -hmm. that on the basis of that statement, I broke up with him, but then a couple weeks later, we got back together because he said he was sorry. I don't know. I have not tested the veracity of those statements. But I also imagine that you've been in drama class. You've been in plays. Mm -hmm. You've been in productions. When you are autistic and you give yourself permission to escape into a personality without filters, without consequence, because it's not really you, it's Victor the vampire, you will go all in on that and explore it to the depths of its darkness. And would it surprise me that he said something like that? No, it wouldn't surprise me because in his creative mind, Mm -hmm. this is what he's creating as the most evil that he could think of and this fits victor's character yeah the other character of that is the antithesis of that but even gypsy was saying that you know she'd be okay if he had sex with other girls but she wouldn't be okay if he had another girlfriend so it was kind of like sex is he can do whatever he wants well maybe she was making that up and I don't know. I think a large part of that is plausible because a lot of that plays into the BDSM thing that Nicholas introduced her to. Now, look, I know that there is a competing theory about he's not the one that got her into BDSM. That was Gypsy's idea, which just knowing the backstory between both of them, unlikely, 
But I also don't think it matters. Yeah. Because if it was Gypsy that introduced him to, fine. If it was Nicholas, fine. But one of the hallmarks of BDSM is that there is a, um, a dominant and a submissive. And so if Gypsy is playing the role of submissive, yeah, do whatever you want. I'm in a wheelchair and I can't ever see you anyway. And I want to keep you do, you know, do your thing. Maybe that was a thing. I don't know. But I also don't think that she had much to worry about. I don't think that he had many prospects. Yeah. Like his entire existence in that regard was online that I know of. Mm-hmm. He, if you listen to the doctors at trial, he had issues with hygiene. He had issues with personal space. He had issues with knowing what was okay to say and whatnot, obviously. Um, but he was convicted of a prior crime. I had said on a previous show it was for exposing himself. That's not what he did. And I misspoke. It wasn't exposing himself. He was like grabbing himself. One person explained like, well, maybe it's because he just had bad hygiene. He was scratching himself. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know. Um, I'd okay. imagine they would have had it on surveillance and the DA would have seen what he was actually doing. Yeah. And they chose to charge him because he was doing something weird. Um, so I don't know. He wasn't. I'm just saying that I don't know whether or not he committed a sex crime purposefully, but for the outside world looking at him, it sure as hell looked like he did. Mm -hmm. And he was convicted of that crime. So a number of different issues with him personality wise, obviously the autism we've talked about it. He just lacked an ability. He lacked self-awareness is really what it was. And because of his desperation to connect on a level that he was able to connect with Gypsy with, he um, lacked discernment. He didn't have the ability to say, hey, Gypsy, that's that's freaking weird. I'm not going to kill your mom, okay? Why don't you, you know what? Why don't we make an appointment with a therapist or somebody? Or, you know, we yeah. could talk to somebody, and Gypsy even said this. If I had met anybody other than Nicholas, they would have said, what are you talking about? We're not killing your mom, obviously. But Nicholas was like, oh, I must do her bidding. Yeah. I will not lose Gypsy. I'm so much in love with her. Mm-hmm. To that degree, I greatly sympathize with him. Let's talk about what came out in trial. So this is what came out in trial. Not verbatim, of course, but they're on day three of testimony. There were a couple of medical professionals, Robert Denny. A psychologist said that he had examined Nicholas and diagnosed him with autism disorder level one. That is a less severe version of autism disorder than what Dr. Kent Franks diagnosed Go to John, who I think diagnosed him with level two. Prosecutors called Robert Denny, the clinical psychologist, as a rebuttal witness because the other defense witness had basically said that he lacked the capacity to form the requisite mens rea to commit first-degree murder, and on that basis, should be acquitted. And for all you law nerds out there, first-degree murder, I mean, like I'm, it's not rocket science, it's a plan to murder somebody that you carried out and followed through with. So what they're basically trying to argue on his defense was that he lacked the requisite mental capacity to formulate such a plan and carry it out, mm. which is nonsense. Yeah. Complete nonsense. Yeah. At the very least, he could do that. The defense calls a witness. They said autism spectrum number two, level two. Prosecution says, no, he's autistic, but level one. Whatever. That's, that's what comes out. 
the next day on cross examination, they had que- they questioned Dr. Kent Franks about messages on Go to John's Facebook account. They asked him. They asked Franks if he had ever reviewed sexting Facebook messages that Go to John sent to another woman in 2014 when he and Gypsy were boyfriend and girlfriend. Frank said that I did not. Uh, later, Dr. Kent Franks, he's the psychologist, I think, for the defense, the Springfield psychology, he said, this is what he basically said, it would be difficult for Nicholas to deliberate because of his autism spectrum disorder. Deliberation is a necessary component of first-degree murder. We already talked about this kind of deliberate, meaning, you know, form a plan, yeah. carry it out, you know, all of these purposefully murder somebody in a first degree kind of a way. And obviously there was a counter witness to that. Franks basically says that Godijan struggles with his memory and processing speed. Processing speed, I sort of, I mean, I don't know anything about it, but his memory, this trial took place in 2018. We've had about six years now of experience with Nicholas to kind of counterbalance and his, Nick, his, his his memory seems pretty good. Yeah, I don't think... He has pretty good recall of what happened in 2018. His oh, story yeah. has not shifted. No. I haven't noticed any inconsistent statements from what he told the interrogators back in 2015. It's yeah. been almost 10 years now. Yeah. And so nonsense to what he's saying about the memory. Processing speed, I buy, but that's not really specific to autism either. No. Like, have you played chess, have you not? With you? As my brother? Yes, I've played chess. Well, you didn't play it very well, <laughs> but there are people out there that they play like, you know, speed chest. Yes. And um, there's I this guy. I was never one of those. Yeah. I've tried. I, I could, I can play speed chess to a certain level. Like I could beat you. Oh. I'll, I'll put 30 seconds on my clock. I'll give you five minutes. I'll probably still win. <laughs> but there's people out there like Hikaru Nakamura. Mm-hmm. And when he plays speed chess, it's just a whole, he's like a robot. It's like, how do you think like that? Like his level of processing and speed, like they have these puzzles on chess.com where like how many chess puzzles can you complete, can compete, complete? How many chess puzzles can you complete um, like within a minute and a half? And I usually get like, oh, 14, 15, 16, 21, I think was my best. Yeah. I'm feeling pretty good. And then I look at this effing guy, Hikaru Nakamura, <laughs> 58 puzzles like how do you even see the board like he's like making moves like i don't even know what if i'm black or white (laughs) and he's just seeing it instantly and so you can have a varying degree of processing speed it doesn't necessarily mean that it's affected by autism yeah just because i could play 30 second chess and you can't has nothing to do with processing speed just because i know the rules a lot better than you have than you do but processing speed is in you know being able to uh look at traffic, engage everything around you, make yeah. a split decision. That's really what it is. Uh, so Franks goes on to say, um, they discussed Go to John's upbringing. Uh, Franks said that Go to John went through school and special education classes. He spent a lot of time alone as a child, I'd imagine, uh, living with a single mom. His mom since passed away, by the way. Oh. Um, I heard. Nicholas had one close friend, um, one girlfriend and one job and holding a sign outside of a pizza shop. That was his job. 
and that was before meeting Gypsy. So his job was to hold, you know, do the flips yep. with the sign and all that. Frank said they go to John's struggles with personal hygiene, often forgetting to shower or brush his teeth. And then they recessed. The judge ruled against the defense motion regarding jury instructions, probably to exclude any instructions about forming the ability. And I don't want to speculate, but I imagine that had something to do with medical diagnoses and, and the jury instructions. Franks said that he had evaluated Nicholas a couple of times, once in December of 2015, and then again about seven months later. And then he goes on to talk, talk about his stuff. Gypsy goes on to testify in that trial very famously. She had already taken her plea deal, so she's in prison at this time, and she's basically admitting to everything. Really, her testimony is designed. She's a defense witness. She's, it's designed to help Nicholas in the case. And she's trying to kind of take the fall for him, sort of, sort of. So what she said was, she testified that Nick, Nick came up with the plan of what to tell authorities if they were caught after the homicide, which, have you seen those interrogation videos? Yeah. What did you think about them? I mean, I could, I kind of put myself in, kind of try to put myself in those shoes of just your mind is racing a million going in all different directions of just like, what's not going to get me in trouble, but you know, they can see right through your, right through your bullshit. Well, just so you know, if you're ever in that situation, you call me. Oh yeah. Oh, I know. You don't say anything. Nothing. Secondly, they're very good at their job. The interrogation room itself is meant to isolate you. Yeah. It's meant to disorient you. They sat her in that room for four hours before they even walked in to talk to her. Mm-hmm. And in that time, you know, you can see her. She's laying down on the couch. She's got a blanket. She's like probably mind racing a mile a minute mm-hmm. and you know, all of this stuff. And what is the plan that we come up? What we're going to say when all this stuff. And they break that stuff down right away. Yeah. So, hey, so we talked to your boyfriend. And then she says, so what do you say happened? Oh, well. You know, the plan. She recites the plan. Mm-hmm. All of these things happen, and so we're safe. And then the detective will say, well, that's not what your boyfriend said. So yeah. this is your one chance. If you want to get out of this with any kind of a dignity, uh, the, the DA is going to look kindly if you cooperate with us. If not, then, hey, death penalty. Good luck with that. Yeah. They'll make you feel that way. Never talk to the cops. There, there's Look, for all of you out there, if the cops want to ask you questions, it's because they're trying to build a case against you. Mm-hmm. If they have enough to arrest you, they're going to arrest you already. Yeah. Call your lawyer and find out what the situation is. There's nothing wrong with giving your factual account of things that were, you know, oh, I saw him pull out a gun and these kinds of things. If you just need to give an account. But if they're trying to ask you the same question 8, 10, 12 times, which is what they do. And convince you that you did yeah. something that you didn't. And then they'll be like, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, why you said this when the other thing is, you know, and they'll have you confused. And you'll be in there and you'll be starving to death. And you'll be nutrient deprived and you'll be thirsty and you'll be cold or you're, you'll be by yourself. You're isolated. Everything that they do is meant to disorient and to get you to make inconsistent statements. Yeah. And which is what happened to Gypsy. Now, there was never any doubt that they committed this murder. None. There was never just they got her on video like doing stabbing motions over her mom's bed. Her defense attorney, I don't know if you saw that video, no, I didn't. but she literally made a video for Nicholas 
um, giving her, giving him the layout of the house. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is where you're going to go. And this is where my mom's room is. And then she's standing over her mom's bed and she's holding the video camera. She makes a stabbing motion. They had uh, her criminal defense attorney on one of these documentaries. Like when I saw that, I was like, (laughs) no going back. No going back. Yeah. And so, but Gypsy kind of owns up to it. Gypsy testified that Nicholas came up with a plan of telling what to tell authorities after the cut. So the plan was to say that Gypsy had been kicked out of her house by her mom and had called to go to John to pick her up. And then after Gypsy answered the last question from the attorneys, the attorneys went into a side room with the judge to make a record. Uh, go to John set and, and okay. So after Gypsy, she asked her like, okay, during cross-examination, we'll pick it up there. After cross-examination, Gypsy said during their role-playing, she was the slave Nicholas was the master. Look, BDSM is not my thing, but I, I got to say it's some people are into it. This is their thing, but this is a whole dynamic yeah. master and slave. And, and um, I was telling Dominic on the last show, whenever I hear BDSM, I always think about Pulp Fiction. You saw that, seen that movie, have you not? Yes, I have seen Pulp Fiction. Jesus Christ, thank God. I was laughing. <laughs> Bring out the gimp. All right. Um, Gypsy said that Nicholas would send her scripts to read when they made the videos. Gypsy said it was Nicholas who chose stabbing as the method to kill her mother because shooting with a gun would be too loud. Gypsy said that she sent Nicholas a picture of the knife before the homicide and he approved of the weapon. Uh, Gypsy said that she paid for Nicholas to come to Springfield, which is true, the whole bus story. And we did the recounting of that about, she gives a recounting. It's like, when I knew he was on the way, me and my mom are sitting down to uh, watch a movie. And um, I give her a hug because I'm like ambivalent about the whole thing. And um, Dee Dee says, well, what's that for? I'm not dead yet. And, the, and then Gypsy's like, oh, the irony. Give it a few hours. Um, Imagine that. Yep. All right. I understand why people want to pounce on Gypsy and demonize her as grooming this defenseless child, even though he was an adult, into murdering her mom. I get, I get it. For all of the reasons that I've stated, because I I can picture a world where Nicholas is a genuine success, a success story, but he met Gypsy. But I also believe her when she say that there was this reticence about it because it's a lot different planning and saying something. How many times have you in anger said to one of your parents, I hate you. Yeah. I wish you were dead. Totally. That was Chris's. Like, oh, this would be easier. You know? Yeah. That's what you're why Chris would do that all the time. That was one of Chris's deals. <laughs> he would say that all the time. He'd say that to me. Oh. I hate you. I wish you were never born. <laughs> he didn't sound like that, but he said, <laughs> He, he sort of sounded like that. <laughs> a little bit. But, uh, no, I mean, you, should, you say these things of in course, anger, but you don't mean you don't, them. You don't carry it out. You don't plan it. You don't, yeah. There's different degrees of anger. There's different degrees. It's the reason why we have first, second degree murder is because in the heat of passion, in the heat of the moment, we say and do things that adrenaline forces us to say or do. Yeah. Like uh, in the heat of the moment, you, have you ever been so 
angry because he lost a softball game or whatever that uh, you slam the bat down after striking out yeah. or you punch the ball. Damn it. <laughs> Ow, my hand. <laughs> yep. um, it's, a, it's a thing that happens. Uh, and some people murder out of passion. Like you just walked in on your significant other with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, you didn't. And you just happen to have a samurai sword there. I don't know. Samurai sword. I'm thinking of Pulp Fiction. <laughs> this will do it. Yeah. Um, but then there's other crimes that are premeditated yeah. and planned out. And you carry out this plan, you're definitely going to do it. Which is kind of what Gypsy did, but to a lesser extent, because mm-hmm. she's not the one that carried out the murder. Which is why they were charging her with second degree. Um, so, in... The moment when, oh, this is really happening. He's literally on a bus. He's heading my way right now. I could see where she had second thoughts. And, you know, I do believe uh, that she had genuine feelings towards her mother of love. Yeah. Somebody had suggested in one of these documentaries that perhaps it was, what's that syndrome? Stockholm. Stockholm syndrome. Yeah where you fall in love with your captor or you have these like kids who still want to stay with their kidnapper because they don't know any better. Yeah. Dee Dee had been taking care of Gypsy all of her life from 91 on. How much of that do you want to say was Dee Dee's fault? I don't know. There are some that would say that her dad would have been a bigger part of her life had it not been for the manipulation of Dee Dee. Mm-hmm. Uh, saying, oh, your dad hates you, hates us, and that's why he's off making his own family and, you know, basically thwarting all of her father's attempts to try to have contact or relationship with, with Gypsy. And to that degree, I still hold the opinion that he didn't fight hard enough. Absolutely not. If that was my child and she's in a wheelchair and she has all these medical conditions and I'm aware of all these surgeries, I want to get to the bottom of it. I want to spend some time with her. I want to have her, you know, one-on-one, not with you, not with you telling me she needs a feed. I want to have my own relationship with my kid. Figure out what's going on. I don't know if that happened or not, but I just know that I feel, I feel. And he has other kids, right? He's got a new family. He's got a new wife. He's got other kids. But I could not picture knowing that about my child and not following up. I just can't. D.D. Blanchard is not going to stop me from getting to the bottom of it. I'll tell you that much. But I also am a family law attorney, and I know how trying that is on the parent that is being kind of aced out. Mm -hmm. I have many clients who are genuine fathers. All they want to do is have a relationship with their child, but they're being stopped at every turn by a vindictive mother for no other reason than they broke up. Yeah. What, What he... He cheated on you. Mm-hmm. He wasn't in love with you anymore, or it's it didn't work out the way you want it to be. And so now your anger is at him and you will never see your child. And it's a measure of getting back at the, the other parent. Totally. It happens. Yeah. And so I suspect it probably happened in this case. And so I don't know, but my only opinion, my opinion about her dad is just, you know, he seems like a, a nice guy and all, but he, he should have fought harder. Definitely. Do I blame him for not fought, fighting harder? I, I can't. I can't pass judgment on him like that because it's it's difficult. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard to go through that and maintain your sanity. And so I'll, I'll just leave it at that with him. What was I, where was, where was I going with this before like, I got in all of that? I was talking about something. Well, let, let's, let's continue on. So 
that's what came out at trial with go to John. I've seen the text messages between the two of them. Nicholas was not stupid. Was he naive? Yeah. Definitely. Was he blindly in love with Gypsy Rose? Yes. Yeah. He's still in love with Gypsy Rose. Yeah, I saw an interview with him race or, you know, how he said he'll always have feelings for Gypsy Rose. And Gypsy's completely turned on him. And yeah. I think that that's kind of lent itself to a lot of the backlash that Gypsy is experiencing right now. Yeah. I had opined on our last episode that it's difficult for me to have all that much sympathy for Nicholas, given that he was the one that carried out the murder. It takes an awful lot of physicality and turning off. It takes a certain level of psychopathy, of a lack of feeling and evil inherent within yourself to murder somebody the way that he murdered Dee Dee. And she didn't deserve that. Whatever. She's a fraud. She's a bad parent. She didn't deserve to be decapitated like that. Yeah. As she's calling out for her daughter to help her. Gypsy, help me. It was was the recall. As she's being murdered. And Gypsy's cowering in the bathroom, knowing what's going on, but not wanting to experience any of it, see or hear, you know? Mm. And so... It's difficult for me to pass. Look, I sympathize with Gypsy because of what she's went through. Whatever level you want to to, to decide, maybe it wasn't as bad as what she's let on. You could say that. And your argument's going to be, I've heard the argument. It's like, oh, well, she's learned from the best. How could you say that she was raised by this masterfully manipulative person, sociopathic, narcissistic individual, and feel like she hasn't that hasn't rubbed off on her in some capacity. And Gypsy has admitted herself that I've admitted that I've learned from the best. I've learned from my mom. And so then it's like, well, how could I believe anything that she says? And the reason why is because of this. When you are, I've experienced this with myself. I've experienced this with my clients. I've experienced this in real life. And I believe it to be true that when you are faced with these intensely traumatic situations, there is refuge in the truth. So her lie was rapidly dispatched with by the interrogators. Done. We know that didn't happen, Gypsy. Your mom's dead. What? My mom's dead? Yeah, I think you already know that. Mm-hmm. Right? And so they got to the bottom of it pretty quickly. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to tell you everything. Um, and I'm not saying everything she said in the interrogation room was what, what the truth was, because it wasn't. She was obviously lying about stuff. But what she's come out with in these subsequent interviews, um, Alan Watts, one of uh, my favorite philosophers. To paraphrase, to highly paraphrase, was basically that there is no greater comfort that you could take than in the truth. And he talks about ego and the ego of being what you are. To be what you are. Who you are is what you are. And to try to manipulate that for other people to make it more acceptable to them 
is, is, is number one, is for your own ego, and it's painful to do. You're never going to be at peace with that. The only way you're going to be at peace is to present your full self and to bask in the truth. And so here's Gypsy. She's sitting in prison. She's pled guilty. She's already said her truth. She goes and, and testifies under oath at trial about the things that she says. And then she gives an interview after the fact as she's being released from prison, uh, pretty much mirroring what she said at, in testimony. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's not really much of a reason for her to lie. She said, yeah, Nicholas did this. He committed this murder and I convinced him to do it. She's not denying that fact yeah. because 100% she did. She was the one that said, when he told her, I will do anything for you. It's like, what do you mean by anything? Would you murder my mom? And then he did. And they perpetrated this plan and they were both complicit in this. And they did this. They did this and she's owned it. And she pled guilty and she's done her time and she's done her 10 years. So no, she's not the innocent victim that you saw in the media back in 2005. But what she is, is the person that really doesn't have a whole lot to hide. Yeah. But if you thought that there was, let's talk about what everybody is up in arms about. So I'm going to read an article and I don't know if I'm going to read the whole thing or not, but I want to, this is some of the pushback that's been against Gypsy, the Good Wives Club. Fancy Machilli. The owner and creator of Mad Ginger Entertainment, what a name, and the Good Wives Network. She com- she considers herself an investigative journalist. She is a founder and uh, of the nonprofit Stop the Cycle of Abuse, among other things. So she publishes an article November of 20th of last year. Let's see what she had to say. I know I often harp on the lies and mistruths out there from Gypsy and her family, but today I like to discuss the doctors. For three years while working with the family before all hell broke loose, when we began questioning their stories, we were given access to Gypsy's medical files, and we still have them all. The files fill up over five of the largest three-ring binders I could find. I know how big they can get. That's not that much, honestly. (laughs) But medical records, I get it. While many believe that her medical files were lost in Katrina, that is a blatant lie. In fact, the doctors did request and received the majority of her records from L.A., including a letter telling them that Gypsy did not have muscular dystrophy, which I believe that. And, you know, I have no reason to question the veracity of what she's saying. She's investigative journalist and all. These records were not sent to doctors who only saw Gypsy once or twice. These medical records were sent to her primary care physicians. Furthermore, her main doctor, Dr. Beckerman, was her main doctor in L.A. as well as Missouri. So where exactly were his old records? Interesting, right? So I brought up this point, and a lot of the commenters have said that worked in the medical profession that, hey, not all of our records were digitized back in 2005. Mm-hmm. That didn't really happen until like 2006, 7, 8, which I believe because yeah. – You know, doctors are doctors and they have a way of doing things. And the medical records to to digitize them is not just, oh, yeah, it's not going to happen overnight. It takes a long time to do all of that. So in the meantime, they're maintaining all of their paper files. And plus, disk space 
was not really a thing back in 2005. Like right now, you got a, a, a hard drive that's got like a terabyte on it or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's commonplace. Well, back then, back when you were born in 1996, well, the first laptop computer I had was like back in 98, and it had like, I don't know, 20 megabytes yeah. of memory that's or something insane. like that, something ridiculous. And so you got these extensive records. You're not just going to get that. It's costly. And, you know, we're trying to be cost effective. We still got these paper records. Mm -hmm. So I buy that. But let's just continue. She says that, okay, people had their records. Fine. Not a single doctor in Gypsy's case has been investigated. Not one. That's not remotely true. That's not even remotely true. But I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. I find that super strange. For years, Colleen, Sarah, Christina, and I have all wondered how this happened. How could the doctors not know? I'm of the opinion they did not, they did, and not only knew, but perpetuated the fraud. When we first started collecting these records, we looked at them in shock. It was utterly unbelievable. But over time, they've really begun to tell a whole different story. Everyone accuses Dee Dee of doctor shopping, but the records don't prove that at all. The same doctors are in these files over and over and over. She also wasn't shopping pharmacies. She wasn't using stolen prescription pads like Christy Blanchard has claimed. There is absolutely no evidence to support this claim. Pushback on that. Um... Maybe in, look, I don't know if this is true or not. And correct me if I'm wrong, commenters that are going to correct me. But I swear to God, I I feel like I remember the DA talking about there were stolen prescription pads. I remember that. That they found yeah. in the cabinet with all of the meds. Mm -hmm. She had a pad. Yeah. If you have a prescription pad. Mm -hmm. That's really only for one reason. There's only one reason you would have that. Yeah. And you can't get, you can't just buy those. You have to steal those. Yeah. And so I don't know where she's going with that, but again, I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt. Um, and Hey, I could be completely off base. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there really isn't any evidence of stolen prescription pads. That's just what I have heard the DA say. Yeah. And I kind of believe them being, Dee Dee was meticulous in her own record keeping. She had a book of all of her picked up medications for her and Gypsy. I can account through the records for every single prescription she had. The medicine cabinet at first glance is beyond shocking. But once you really start evaluating it, things aren't always as they appear. The medicine cabinet looks like she was fleecing every pharmacy in a 100 mile radius. That's what I, that's what we first thought. That's what we thought at first too. Then there's a picture of it. And I'll have a link to the picture as well. Dominic will put it in. But instead, that closet to me proves she was never taking any of the medications. <sighs> Listen, Pacelli, or what is her name? What is her name? Fancy. Listen, Fancy. I'm not interested in that kind of speculation. What I have learned about Dee Dee is that she had somewhat of a medical background. And if you have a closet full of pharmaceutical medications and your scheme is to perpetuate a fraud, but you don't want to get your daughter so sick as to, you know, harm her in mm -hmm. like a, a real robust kind of a way, you will have all of those medications, but you're not going to overdo it. Yeah. 
Like, uh, you're not going to keep on giving her all of these opiates. You're not going to keep giving her all of these uh, stomach medications. You're not going to give her all this kind of stuff because of how they might counterbalance some of the symptoms that you're trying to perpetuate on other doctors. Just because she has a cabinet full that has of medicine that hasn't been fully used, I'm assuming that's why she's saying that, doesn't mean, or just because the medications aren't being taken, doesn't mean that uh, Gypsy was not perpetuating the fraud herself on Gypsy. It certainly doesn't mean that Gypsy's in on it. Yeah. But the fact that she has a cabinet full of basically a miniature pharmacy in her cabinet in her house lends credence or support for the fact that, oh, because she had a pharmacy pad that she had stolen from a doctor. Yeah. And so I don't understand fancy speculation here, but I'll continue with her. The closet is in direct opposition to the rest of the house. The rest of the house was in utter chaos, except for the medications. Makes sense. And it was, the house was kind of a pigsty. It was like a, yeah. she was like a hoarder, basically, to a minor degree. So the first responding officer, Officer Hughes, told us that one of the back bedrooms was so full of junk they couldn't push the door open. Take a zoom in on this picture. If you look at the boxes and bottles, there truly aren't that many that are prescription, the ones that are look like, the ones that are look like cough medicine, which we do have many records for those, and they appear full. The boxes are inhalers. Again, look at those boxes piled up, but not open. So Fancy is speculating on one photograph that came out of the discovery mm -hmm. in trying to form conclusions, which is kind of, you know, a fool's task, yeah. if you ask me. Yeah. One picture from one moment in time from 2015 does not tell the story of what happened between 1991 to 2025, not 25, 15, 23 to 24 years of Gypsy's life. It doesn't tell the full tale, but fair enough. Everything else is over the counter medications. So the house of hoarders delight. So she talks about Dr. Beckerman. Dr. Beckerman was Gypsy's main doctor with Dr. Steele. Both doctors worked for children's mercy hospital of Missouri. Dr. Beckerman was Gypsy's doctor for her entire life. In fact, after leaving Louisiana to go to Missouri, he held his medical license in L.A. and practiced there. So he saw Gypsy this whole time. He didn't randomly reunite with them after Katrina. His records are at best unprofessional and at worst littered with blatant lies. On one visit, he states she's 13. On the next visit, two days later, in his own words, she's now 15. And back to the thir uh, 13 on the next visit. This goes well beyond just bad record keeping or DD changing birthdays. These are doctor's notes and things change from him depending on what doctor he is communicating with. He refers to them in his files as his favorite mother-daughter patient. So she carries on. And basically, without reading the entire interview, because it's like an article, it's like a thousand pages. If you guys want to look it up, maybe I'll leave, I'll, I'll leave a link in the description um, from this article that you could read for yourself. But her basic premise is that Gypsy is not as innocent as she seems. Mm -hmm. She was in on the fraud if there was a fraud at all. Dee Dee, well, she claims there was a fraud. She has claimed that Gypsy was sort of kind of in, in on it. Yeah. Um, multiple lies about what Gypsy has said about the abuse and level of abuse and things that have happened. For example, Gypsy talks about accounts where she was beaten with like coat hangers and fists and all those kinds of stuff. Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. I don't know. Was she embellishing? I don't know. I just know this. That's... The uncontroverted evidence 
from the DA to the defense attorneys, from all the other people, suggest that she was severely abused. Is it to the degree that Gypsy said? I don't know. I really don't. Yeah. I guess the question is, does it matter? If she was being forced to be kept in a wheelchair from the time that she was about three or four years old until she was now an adult young lady, 23 to 24 years old, to the point where she's being financially controlled uh, by Dee Dee Blanchard, to the point where she didn't have a education to be able to fend for herself, get a job, go out, make her own money, do whatever. Uh, she's being fed all of these uh, Disney themes and you know this is her education on the world and yeah. um, she's wanting to go to all of these science fiction conventions because it's her escape it's her her way to I, I guess connect with the outside world and every time she has a boyfriend all of a sudden you know Dee Dee can't handle it she's supporting her completely financially she's going through all of these surgeries which may or may not be required or not they go, they, go, they go on to argue in this article that some of the surgeries that had happened were perhaps actually needed because of various conditions. And then she goes on to argue that. So this is what Fancy is claiming in her article. So of note, most of Gypsy's surgeries and treatments were considered routine. Most, but not all. If you look at Gypsy in her early years, you can see problems with her eyes, which is true because she yeah. did have like a wonky eye or like she had these seizures. But one, I, I, I think that like one of her, like she had an eye that would wander basically. Okay. And like a lazy eye? Sort of. I, okay. I, I don't want to say that because I don't know if that's the correct medical term, oh. but there was something definitely going on with her eyes okay. uh, that required some kind of a surgery and it kind of uh, prompted or started or was the, the, the initial moment to Dee Dee saying, hey, um, I really like how this sympathy feels. And so I'm going to corroborate this. And then, you know, the the uh, motorcycle accident and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So there was definitely some surgeries that were necessary, but not all of them were necessary was Gypsy's point. She's saying that some, you know, most of them were required, but no, not all, whatever. One such instance was with the breathing machine. There are hours and hours of it just running with no ups and downs. As if the machine is turned on and left, he tells Dee Dee to bring it in, but she never does. However, he still makes recommendations on treatments without the device. She's talking about the doctors not basically, basically not doing their jobs. He says it's faulty and orders another. Then in the files, he indicates the reason he doesn't have the new results is because they were on a make-a-wish trip and left it behind. This explains why the new machine had no results because it was lost. Never mind with that. Some of the statements, he blames the fact that they get so excited to him seeing the some of the breathing machine. I'm looking for the surgeries. Okay, here, here it was. So this was long before anything was being done to them surgically. She had many eye surgeries. These easily could have been necessary at some point. I would argue they probably were necessary. Yeah. She continues. She had tubes placed in her ears, which is another common procedure for children. I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't really what heard kind of, of a, common surgery. I got three kids. I never stuck any tubes in their ears. <laughs> but given again, I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt. A feeding tube, the second most invasive procedure of all. 
She never had monitored and numerous dental surgeries that could have been needed for a variety of reasons. She didn't take one bite of cake and her mom removed them like certain shows have portrayed. They were rotting out of her head and that can be explained as just bad teeth or bad oral hygiene. So, but there's no medical records. Look, the, the, the more sent, there's lots of, there's lots of people that have bad oral hygiene. Not everybody has teeth falling out of their face yeah. at the age that Gypsy was. And so for all the fancy speculations, if she wants to attack the doctors, that's fine. Um, if she wants to say that Dee was making up stuff, I don't think anybody's disputing that. But, you know, for her to speculate that it could have been other things, well, no shit. Yeah. Of course it could have. Yeah. That's why we look at all of the evidence. So I feel like she's gone through all of these investigations she needs a purpose for it. And she has all of these alternative theories and people are eating it up and they're saying, oh, the lies and all of this with Gypsy. I feel like a lot of this is just perpetrated because I think that people have sympathy for Nicholas and the way that he was manipulated and carried into this. Before I get off track, uh, to, to finish with this article, the biggest and most dangerous surgery would have been the removal of the salivary glands, but I'm not convinced that was actually done. A friend of mine, Jen Liu from the Ward case studies, pointed this out to me. Gypsy is capable of licking her lips and producing saliva. And if all the salivary glands were removed, then she would not be able to do this. Mm -hmm. Upon reading the medical files again, what we can see is the glands were reduced in size, but not fully removed. With the questions we have on the doctor's involvement in the fraud, though we can't even be certain the surgery was even performed. I know it's a wild stretch, but it's not unheard of. And in my opinion, in this case, it's just about the only thing that makes sense. Gypsy has had way too many conflicting issues in her files being regularly shared with other doctors for this to be swept under the rug. These doctors need to be investigated and their licenses should be revoked. Perhaps, perhaps, but I'll just, my, my critique of that is just in this article, and the problem with a lot of these articles that the, the, the Good Wives Clubs have presented is that a lot of it is just pure speculation. Yeah. Nobody really knows what happened other than Dee Dee Blanchard, Gypsy Rose, and whatever happened between the two of them, that was an audience of two. Yeah. We could speculate as these people have. You could turn on Gypsy and say that she's lying and I can't trust anything that she says because she learned from the best. Yeah, sure. You could do that. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you could use your own discernment and just take everything into context and just say, that, look, for whatever you think happened regarding the abuse of Gypsy Rose as she being held captive by her mother, something happened that caused her to be a 24-year-old adult female parading around in a wheelchair, feeling like she had no other option than to get rid of her mom. She's admitted, yes, I plan to kill my mom. Yes, I made Nicholas do it. What defenses did Nicholas have? He didn't have many. Yeah. His mom was aware of Gypsy, but I don't think she knew to the degree or the level of, like, she knew that he was infatuated with Gypsy. Yeah, the she amount of control she had over him. She didn't know much about Gypsy. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of what the investigators presented her with during the interrogations was like news to her. Yeah. But the way she describes her son is like, I felt for her because it's like she's cared for him all of his life. She sees him as this good kid. You know, she's raised him. She's, this is her baby. He would never hurt anybody's, what she yeah. kept saying, unless, unless he falls with somebody 
in love with somebody so deeply that he would do anything for her. And because he loves his mom and he would do anything for his mom, the true test of love's purity is what you would be willing to sacrifice for your person. And if you tell me that your mother's abusing you and you need me to get rid of her, well, damn it. I'm going to summon Victor. Victor will take care of all. And that is Nicholas's story. He could have pled guilty. He could have pled guilty and not tried the whole lack of mental capacity defense. And I don't want to be too harsh on his defense team, but the arguments that they presented during trial were ludicrous. Because you had video evidence of him speaking to the interrogators at a level of a person that knows the difference between right and wrong. Yeah. He very clearly knew the difference between right and wrong. He was saying, I know what I did was wrong. He had sufficient recall of all of the events that happened. So at the, on the one hand, they're questioning his memory and saying that his mental incapacities affect mm -hmm. his memory and his ability to recall. Yet you see him on film with the interrogators recalling step-by-step step how it happened, exactly how it happened, taking them basically giving a photographic memory. The one description being, I thought I stabbed her four times, but it was definitely multiple times, but it was actually 17, was like yeah. the thing that he got wrong the most. There's also accounts of him after the murder was committed. He was severely heartbroken. He was troubled to his core, to the version of him that was not Victor, the 500-year-old vampire. Just Nicholas himself, he was heartbroken over what he did. There's an article that came out uh, way back in 2018. There was accounts between Nicholas and Gypsy as they're sitting in the hotel rooms after the murders have been committed, where he's like crying his eyes out. He's bawling incessantly. And then Gypsy keeps telling him, there's no reason for you to cry. What are you crying for? I'm the one that told you to do it. It wasn't your idea. It was my idea trying to take the blame off of her, off of him. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of what angers people the most is that she describes this as being like, oh, we're going on this, like I'm going on vacation to Hawaii on their bus trip afterwards. The way that this was all planned by her was she more sophisticated than Nicholas? 100% she was. Was she more intelligent, have better mental capacity than Nicholas? Sure. She also wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. But her plans and how she orchestrated all of this, stealing the knife and the gloves uh, for Nicholas to use, the curious part about it all was why was it the plan to murder, to, to mail the murder weapons back to Nicholas's house? I heard about that. What do you think of that? Well, in your layperson's brain, not a lawyer, <laughs> why would somebody mail the murder weapon to Nicholas's house? I genuinely had no, no answer for that. Is it? Unless... You're trying to pin the murder on, on Nicholas. Yeah. yeah. Because there was a moment in time yeah. in the interrogation where she 100% was going to place all the blame on Nicholas oh, and try to get off scot-free. She thought that that was going to happen. Yeah. But no. 
they, they had other evidence against her, obviously. Yeah. But she 100%, when she's been interrogated by law enforcement, mm -hmm. flipped on Nicholas. Yeah. Now she comes back triumphantly in 2018 and she tries to do him a solid and testifies on his behalf. <laughs> but there was 100% a part of this plan that involved her setting up Nicholas. She gets him to do his bidding. How much do you love me? Do you love me enough to kill my mom? Yes, I do. And then they do. They, they set up the whole plot, the whole plan, and they, he carries it out. But the whole mailing the murder weapon to Nicholas's house, as opposed to disposing of it somewhere, yeah. like most people would try to do, yeah. is just, th there's only one reason we would do that. Yeah. To pin it on all on Nicholas. So I feel like people probably correctly, which is why they're so upset at gypsies, because look, she groomed this young man for three years. She came up with this plan. She convinced him to do it. She got him to fall in love with her. And then at the end of it all, she wanted to throw him away for the rest of his life, take the rap for the murder. Yeah. And indeed, in, indeed, he is sitting there, life without possibility to parole, right now as we speak and she's out and she's married to some new guy and she's living her life so she's famous now the backlash for her is i feel rooted in that yeah all of these other conspiracy theories that you're trying to come up with that she wasn't actually a victim of munchausen she was in on the fraud or all of these lies or she wasn't abused like she says is a red herring that's because she was clearly abused to some level yeah definitely I don't have any doubt that she was abused. It's just a matter of she has somebody else paying the consequences of. Yeah. But she 100% tried to set up Nicholas. Yeah. And so I understand. So the title of this episode, and I don't know what it's going to be yet, but I imagine it's going to be something along the lines of, is Gypsy Rose a fraud? Victim or Gypsy Rose, victim or fraud or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Dominic will come up with something better. <laughs> But uh, asking that question, I feel like it's a mixture of both. 100% yeah. a victim. 100% she tried to lie to law enforcement to gain the upper hand. But if, as I hear her speak right now, I truly believe, as I talked about bathing in the truth, that right now her only refuge is in the truth. And what she has to say now, having paid her dues, there's no risk of her going back to prison. Mm -hmm. What she has to say now, as opposed to then, is probably the unadulterated truth. Now, people don't like it because she's married now and she's dissociated herself from Nicholas. 100%. Yeah. She has not a good word to say about that young man, even though he's still professing his feelings for her. Fully, yeah. And, and so... He, has, he said with his new... Christian faith, he will, he can't put, place judgment on Gypsy because. Well, good for him. It's just. But. I don't know, man. Yeah. It's, 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 it's hard for me as a lawyer. You know, I used to work for the DA's office. I interned for the DA's office. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I decided I wasn't, I couldn't be, I couldn't be DA. I couldn't. Because. They want to pass judgment on all of these folks. And there was like an occasion where there was this guy and I was like a, a law student. And so I was making a court appearance, but like the DA was supervising me, but I was like making the appearance in court. And it was for like a bail hearing. And like the DA wanted me to say that this guy had a rap sheet a mile long 
and that he was, well, here's what the defense was saying. The defense was saying, this guy is a vital part of his daughter's rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. His daughter's some medical condition. He was like deeply involved in the rehabilitation and he needed to stay out of prison and he was a good guy. And all he wants to do, is he wanted to lower the bail so it would make him easy to, easier to bail out so he could continue to care for his daughter. Okay. The DA wanted me to say that, well, he's got a rap sheet going back 12 years. And I looked at the charges. He had like five different convictions for possession of marijuana. Give me a break. It's, it's freaking legal now, yeah. right? Um, I mean, at least at the state level. But they wanted me to say that based on his record, for all we know, not only is, is he a danger to the public, but he's also a danger to his daughter. And the DA wanted me to say that. Yeah. And I had to say that because they're telling me they're my boss, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not even a lawyer at that point. I'm a law yeah. student. But I felt so dirty saying that. Yeah. Like I'm passing judgment on this guy's entire life. And I didn't even believe it to be true myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um I couldn't. I can't. Look, I understand they serve a purpose and it's their job to do those things. But the act of, and you know what? There are DAs out there that would take a case like that and mm -hmm. say, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, I have no, no opposition to that. But this particular DA, just, yeah. you know, whatever. And I don't know if he had a vendetta. I, I doubt it. Knowing that guy, he was a really good attorney, really good DA, really good guy. But I just could not stomach it. Yeah. And so I became a criminal defense attorney when I first started my career and. It's funny because when I was on the trial team in law school, I really, really, really wanted to be a DA. But my professor was like, oh, you're such a criminal defense attorney. Give me a break. <laughs> like, I am not. I'm here to serve the justice of the people. And, well, here you are. turns out she was right. <laughs> Either way, Gypsy is guilty of many a thing. Second degree murder for sure. Uh, did she uh, cut ties with Nicholas and try to flip the, the script and throw him under the bus? Yeah, she did. Whatever backlash that she faces from the general public, nobody could save her from that. That is coming. If she wants to be this public figure, well, it's going to be difficult for her. Um, and she tried to come out. I think she, she tried to open up a YouTube channel. She posted a couple of videos talking about for all the haters out there. I just want you to know that I'm ignoring you and it doesn't bother me. I'm just trying to repair my life. And then she deleted the videos because she was getting so much hate. I bet. Um, and it's going to be like that. It's going to be like that for a, while. for a while. I sympathize with her. She, she had a, a, a tough deck of cards. Yeah. She had a tough hand. Um, and who knows what she was going through in prison and, well, She's starting over. I mean, yeah. in prison, you, the way you hear her describe it, it's like she was away at summer camp. Really? She had a, I mean, she learned how to do her makeup. She got her oh. GED in there. Yeah. And, you know, she was the first time that she got to be away from her mom and not have to worry about a wheelchair and medications yeah. and stuff. I think she had, she had a, a fiance in prison. She mm -hmm. had her best friend in, in prison who since turned on her because of whatever. Look, there's all, there's all kinds of people of coming for Gypsy alleging that she lied about this and that. I don't take, I, I, I honestly don't give a lot of weight to any of it. People are going to come. Gypsy is, is, is a media magnet right now. And a lot of people are going to try to get their name out there. So I'm not going to speculate about the lies that are, or maybe it's true. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just, I'm not going to speculate about people speaking out against her that were once her friend and now they are not. I'm just not. 
that is something that is happening, that is coming. It is 100% coming. So with all that said, I think we've spent now about six hours talking about Gypsy Rose over three course of three or four episodes. I forget how many it was. Uh, but I think that we're going to shut the door on Gypsy Rose. Uh, at the end of it all, uh, in conclusion, Gypsy Rose was a victim uh, of Munchausen by proxy. I haven't seen any evidence to suggest otherwise. And you could speculate to degrees. You could speculate to, to degrees of physical abuse. You could even speculate about her account of sexual abuse not being true, which I 100% believe is true, having listened to uh, the grandfather speak. But another story for another day. She was a victim, a tragic tale of what happens when you can find a young woman that has a will to be independent and free and what happens what could what is the ultimate that could happen well it could end up in murder in the story of this young man nicholas Godojohn, who was a sweet boy by all accounts he creates these online personas he creates a home for himself in his head about victor the vampire not vampire slayer victor the vampire who does his evil bidding and you could find sympathy for him as well. The only person that has lost their life in all of this is Dee Dee Blanchard. We're never going to get her first-hand account, her first-hand account of any of this. She's gone. And whatever your opinion is of her as a parent, as a mother, as a whatever, she didn't deserve to go out the way that she did. Nicholas didn't deserve to meet gypsy a person that was going to convince him to commit first degree murder given all the good things that he could have become and gypsy did not deserve what she got now she deserves what's coming and i can't save her from that and nobody could save her from that and that is part of the deal it's not just a 10-year prison sentence she serves eight years of it and then you know get to start brand new like none of this ever happens oh the public is going to hold her accountable and she's going to have to adjust to that she's going to have to adjust to married life and try to figure all of that out but for all of that you know i wish her all the best i have no judgment to pass on gypsy or nicholas they've already been judged i only wish that she could find some kind of a peace in all of this and you know the general public is going to pass judgment more than I ever could. And that's all I really have to say about her. Do you have any closing thoughts about her? I don't. I think, I'd, I mean, she got dealt a pretty crappy deck of cards and she's trying to do what she can. Everyone's going to have their opinions no matter what. Nicholas as well. Feel bad for the guy. But it was going to be, you know, if, if it wasn't him, she was going to do it to somebody else. And maybe or maybe not. There was that guy, Dan. Dan wasn't yeah. killing anybody. He was a 35 year old guy. I mean, they ran away together. But like she said. But anyone she could manipulate, she was going to. Yeah, she needed somebody that could be manipulated. If I met somebody online that was telling me to kill her mom, it's like, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. What the hell? <laughs> would yeah. be the, the the reactions of like 99% of people out there. Yeah. So she required somebody. And I don't know, maybe it would have been a phase that she was going through. Maybe, maybe her and Dee Dee could have advanced past all of everything that was going on. The problem with that is Dee Dee was financially interested. She was stealing Gypsy's 
SSI checks. And so there was no replacing that income. I don't know. Tragic tale for all sides, for all parties involved. I, I think it also makes me wonder of where, how far, how long would Didi have taken it? You know, if, if. Well, that's a question that remains to be seen. I mean, as far as she yeah. took it, I mean, at some point she had to have known. I mean, at what would the abuse have increased to try to keep Gypsy under her shoe? Yeah. Or would it have been, oh, maybe I'll just get a job and stop stealing SSI checks? Yeah. I don't know. But it happened how it happened. Mm -hmm. And now Gypsy is out of prison. She is what? She's 33 now? 34? So. She's got a lot of grown up to do. I think she's starting to get a taste of what real independence looks like. Sort of, because she's married to that guy now mm -hmm. that I'm red flags all over. I talked about that last week. That guy, uh, I don't trust that guy for a second, but I have the best of hopes. I don't want to pass judgment on him. He just seems uh, not, it just wasn't the best idea to get married before you're a single person outside of prison. Yeah. But uh, hey, what's done is done. Yeah. But I think it is time to bring in purple haze ha -ha. Uncle Omar's here. it is time for another segment of uncle omar and giving family law advice to the unsuspecting public so we've been doing this segment now for i don't know three or four shows and it's kind of this tail end thing that we do we're trying to make it a separate thing and we're building up steam for it. But I've said many times when I first did this podcast, it was intended to be giving legal advice to like family law folks or whoever. Yeah. It turned into this true crime thing, which I'm very grateful for because, you know, it's grown quite significantly. But here we are. But let's talk to this person who has a question. My husband wants a divorce. Now what? Well... Let's see what she has to say. My life for the last four years has been hectic. I have a four-year-old daughter from previous relationship. Her father, my ex, continuously harasses us when he's out of jail. Well, the police think he will murder me one day, so they have given me a panic button and go straight to the police cars if he comes around I've been in a lawyer for over 10 years now. Mm -hmm. I've never heard of the police giving a panic button to anybody. I was just going to say, is that a thing? I've never heard of it. No. And okay. so I don't know why she said that. Maybe it's true in wherever, whatever county she's in, but I'm going to, let's just roll with it. Um, my husband knew this all along going into our relationship. Oh, about the panic button, I guess. So for the first year, it was smooth. Uh, we got married. Quickly, three to four months into our relationship, we wanted to do something crazy. Then life got crazy. My daughter almost died. Four times being on life support. Three times. She's a little miracle child. They have no idea what's wrong with her. And she is in many studies. It's not even fit. All right. <clears throat> Between her father going mental... I am currently taking him to court for full custody, zero interaction, and my daughter almost dying three times in a one-year radius. I shut down. 
I stopped being intimate sometimes. We went one to two months without. I started arguing with my husband, which in turn made me not want to be intimate. He told me to go to couples counseling for the last six months. But in Canada, the wait for government mental health is over a year. Jesus Christ. That's probably why she had a panic button. She's in Canada. That makes more sense. I I know nothing about panic buttons in Canada. Okay. They care about their people. Also, they also have free health care over there, but maybe one of the drawbacks of that is you got a one-year waiting list for mental health. Yeah, that's crazy. I can't corroborate any of that, but let's Hmm. continue. Privatized health care is insane. Okay, so they do have... So he told me he wanted a divorce. He's no longer has feelings towards me. I did everything I could reason with him, and now I'm seeing a counselor through victim services. I miss him. I haven't given him much space since he left. It's hard when I ache to fix things, so I'm going to start here. He's currently living on our other property where we have a farm, but he is 100% done, and I have no idea what how to win him back. I feel like you should understand why I shut myself down. It's not worth a divorce. Well, that's a tough one. There is a lot going on there. How long were they married? How long did I say they were married? I didn't hear. So they had a four-year-old daughter from a previous relationship. My daughter almost dying three times. Okay, so there's, yeah. It's not immediately clear to me how long they've been married. Uh, he wants a divorce, but they've been married. Okay. For the last four years, been hectic. Four-year-old from a previous relationship. Gotcha. Okay. So, what do you think that I'm going to say to these folks? I have no idea. Well, that's not very helpful. <laughs> but it's okay. Here's what I have to say about it. They've been married. They were married three to four months after dating each other, which is ill-advised. I have no idea how old this person is, and it doesn't matter. And let's assume they're somewhere in their late 20s, is what the way that this lady writes. <sighs> you have asked that man to take on an awful lot in a very short span of time. Yeah. Your daughter has mental health, or not mental, she has physical health issues. Almost dying four times, that which, you know, I trust that what you're saying is true. That's a lot to ask of anybody. And then you've shut yourself down because of things that you were going through. And in all the while, you're asking him to, that he should just understand why you shut down. And, you know, with no consequence, you know, without serving any of his needs, without fully admitting because you're shutting down your necessarily not being the ideal wife for him, wondering why he wants to separate, having virtually no history together, a brand new marriage, and the prospects for everything honestly getting a lot worse. Those health issues are not going away. I don't know what's going on with your ex. You got a panic button, I assume, that he's out of prison now, that might, that may or may not be a thing. So you've asked this guy to not only take on your daughter and all her mental health issues and provide for you financially and deal with your crazy ex that is so crazy that you need a panic button. And not only that, but deal with all of it while you are shutting down as a wife. Why on God's green earth would this man want to stay with you? 
you have given him zero incentive. There is nothing that you're adding to his life in terms of stability. I don't know about the finances, but not even in terms of intimacy, in terms of helping him cope through whatever he's having to go through mentally, having to deal with all of this as a man, it's a lot different for the man than it is for the woman. And you've been living with this all your life. It's extremely selfish of you to even ask the question of why he would even want a divorce. I got to believe in your heart of hearts, you know why he's asking for the divorce. You've described all of the reasons. But you say, at the end of all of that, I feel like he should understand why I shut myself down. It's not worth the divorce. And I would argue to him, that's not your kid. What is she bringing to your table? What is she contributing? You just got married to this person. If you were living in California, this being a community property State, I imagine that you guys probably don't own much together because you got married within three or four months. Whatever you have is kind of a separate property already. But the longer he's married to you, the more he's going to have to give up an alimony, not to mention, well, he's not going to be on the hook for child support, but alimony is going to be a thing. Mm-hmm. If he just got married to you, my advice to him, honestly, if he was my brother, if he was my son, run for the hills, buddy. <laughs> Get out now. So what were you thinking? Well, obviously, I mean that's the the pre the pre the prequel to that conversation. What the hell? Mm. That's my concern is what what did she say in the beginning to convince him that doesn't matter. She was probably let's just imagine a world where, where that would happen. She must have been like supremely attractive or maybe she wasn't maybe it was like a Nicholas go to John where he didn't feel like he has as many prospects. She wants to get married. Yeah, sure. We'll do it. Whatever. Yeah. After three to four months, who knows? It could is a million different reasons. I don't want to speculate. Point is we're here now. And what do we do about it? And she wants to know why uh, he doesn't understand what she's going through, which how could he even begin to answer that question when you've completely shut down? And let's just go back over what she said. Uh, He told me to go to couples counseling for the last six months, but we can't because mental health and just my opinion on that couples counseling is kind of a farce. Most people that conduct couples counseling don't have all the answers themselves. I have had clients that were clinical psychologists and their lives are a wreck. Their marriages are falling apart, have fallen apart, 100% destruction but they are actively employed as uh, couples counselors, marriage counselors, and these things. What does that say about the human condition? You don't need somebody with a PhD to tell you how to be a good wife. You don't need somebody with a doctor's license to tell you how to be a good husband or how to cope with these feelings. These are intimate conversations that you have with your partner. There's nobody that's going to give you better counseling than them. What they really do is they get you to answer questions. Ask and answer specific questions. And, and so the, the, if you think that couples counseling is going to be the answer to save everything, I kind of beg to differ on all of that. But then he tells me he wants a divorce. He's no longer 
has feeling towards me. I did everything I could to reason with him. And now I am seeing a counselor through victim services. All right. So she found a way somehow to have a, a counselor through victim well, maybe services. Maybe the counselor will tell her. Here's the thing, open man. Open her eyes to what she's asking of this, well, this man. Well, let me ask you, Ness. Under what condition would you be with somebody that views themselves as is 100% the victim and they expect you to understand, look, I got it hard. I got all of this baggage and I'm getting victims counseling. You just need to understand under what scenario would that be okay for you to partner with that person, let alone under the throes of marriage, just partner with them in general. At what point do you say, Hey, look, buddy, I'm out. I think it, I mean, you can always support your partner but at the end of the day, you do have to stick up for yourself. And if you're getting treated badly and everyone has their own thing that they're going through. Well, I'll tell you what. One of the smartest bits of marriage advice I've ever heard is that marriage is not a 50-50 proposition ever. It's not. Yeah. Somebody is always going to be giving more. Yeah. And, you know, in the case of my marriage, there's some times when my wife doesn't have 50% to give me. Mm-hmm. sometimes it's like 10%. I got to carry the other 90. I could do that for so far, yeah. but there's going to be times where I don't got 90% to give you. Of course. And then it shifts and it's always this back and forth. If she's constantly asking him for 90%, giving her 10% and expecting it to be enough, it's not going yeah. to go well, especially in a new marriage. Now, if you've built up 5, 10, 15 20 years of good currency where you've lived your lives and you've given given to each other. Mm-hmm. And it's this extended period of time that might, he needs to give you 90, you need him to give you 90% for years. Um, then fine. But you haven't built up that savings in the bank with him. What he has signed up for is a victim. And that is exhausting. And you're not even intimate with him. And he can't even talk to you about anything. Because of where you're at. You have nothing to give him or offer him. Of course, he wants a divorce. I think it's, I mean, at the end of the day, she doesn't respect him enough. It's all about respect. She doesn't respect. Well, the thing about it is, she says he's 100% done. He probably is and good for him. She says it's not worth a divorce. In his case, it might be worth a divorce. Because it might not be worth it to stay. Mm -hmm. Because the longer he's in the more he's going to have to give her ultimately an alimony in a community property state. And again, they're in California. I have no idea how it works over there, but let's just assume. Yeah. Let's just say, look, if you're married for five years and you want to get a divorce, the person that's required to pay alimony, if at all, is presumed to be half the length of the marriage. If you're married for 10 years, then that expands to the rest of your life until you either remarry, you pass away financially responsible for this person. Or basically until you retire yeah. and you're no longer earning an income, then there's discussions to be had about that. But get out now. You don't got any kids with this lady. There's no baggage. Leave her to that. Say good luck with that and move on is how I would advise him. For her, she needs to take a look in the mirror as to what is her value to society. Let's assume that this divorce is going to go through. What is it that she has to offer anybody new? Yeah. This guy signed up to this for whatever reason. Fine. Three months Three to four months, you guys are dating. You guys are in this new marriage. Great. But he gets in and he sees that you have zero to offer. What is your value as a woman? You have a kid with a guy 
that's went to prison and is now out to such a degree that you have a panic button to alert the police if he should show up on your door. Red flag number one. You have a child that has all of these health issues that is going to require probably lifelong care, extensive medical support, which is going to require finances. That's red flag number two. On top of that, you want him to expect to understand why you're not giving him anything in the marriage because of all the things that you're going through. Well, that's just strike three. I'm all the way out on that. What single man is going to sign up for that? And if they do sign up for that, what does that say about them and their value as a man and their discernment of character? Yeah. Just going to continue to play that victim card with anyone that walks, walks through the door until, you know, hopefully she gets some counseling and someone can help her see that. Well, counseling on that, but I think that she's getting counseling on the wrong thing. She needs to get counseling. There's two forms of counseling. There's counseling as in, oh, I'm so empathetic to your cause and give me all of your trauma and I want to know all about how it hurts you. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other part about, you know what, stop being a bitch and come on. (laughs) (laughs) Enough of all of that. I need that kind of therapist. (laughs) Why don't you just grow? Look, I need you to grow a pair and we need you rub some dirt on it. We got things to do. It's time to pick up and get going. Yeah. She needs that kind of counseling. Yeah. Because if you're going to walk through your entire life, I apologize for hitting the table. I know that sounded wonderful on the on the mics. <laughs> if you're if if you're going to look for that kind of counseling, you're always going to be a victim. You're never going to get better. You're not going to have any value to anybody. So at some point in her life, she's going to have to grow up and stop parading her traumas out there and start adding to what she's going to give to somebody else if that's what she wants, a partner. What do you bring? Develop it. If if that turns out to be toughness, resiliency, perseverance, and all of these other good qualities that come from, you know, pulling yourself up from all of these traumas and bringing your daughter out of it, saving her life, getting yourself through all of the stuff you're going through, growing up and gaining some wisdom, then do it. But in the process of doing that, now you have something to bring to the table. Yeah. It's just not right now. Right now, maybe she needs to be by herself for a little bit. I think I think that's exactly what she needs. And if she doesn't get through this cycle of trauma dumping on folks, she's going to die alone. That's my prognosis for her. And with that, I'm going to leave her on that note. <laughs> and we're going to, we're going <laughs> to move on. <laughs> All right. This other person says, a dear friend of mine is in the middle of what will likely be a messy divorce. His soon-to-be ex is the breadwinner, and he has spent the last 10 years or so as the primary caregiver in managing the household, the standard SAHD deal. They have two kids, a boy, 14, and a girl, 10. Things between them have been rough for a while and getting progressively nastier the last few months. While she earns a very good living, his family is fairly wealthy and he stands to come into a significant inheritance. In addition, his family ponied up quite a bit for their home and down payment. They live in a great house in a pretty posh neighborhood. So to protect himself, I've advised that he lawyer up immediately and start making notes of every mean, irresponsible, stupid thing she has done over the last few years. For context, she's a bit of a party girl 
and a big drinker, plus she has been verbally abusive to him many times. Is there anything else he should be doing right now? Thanks in advance for your input. Well, if it's just about the money, I don't think he has much to worry about that. So yeah. in community property states such as California, if you gain an inheritance, regardless of whether or not you are married or not, that inheritance is already designated as your separate property. You don't got to share that with your spouse. There's exceptions to that. The exception would be if you commingle your funds, for example, taking that inheritance and placing it in, into a joint bank account, for mm -hmm. example. Now, well, it's a gift to the community and she's entitled to half. Yeah. But if you were to keep that separate and apart, in a separate bank account, maybe a separate trust that you have, um, designate that as your separate property and never commingle it or use it on community assets. Regardless of whether or not he obtains that during marriage or not, that's going to be his separate property right off the bat. Yeah. So let's dispatch with that very simple issue. You got a couple of kids, they're 14 and 10. She's the breadwinner. <sighs> I've seen this case a million times. Sharon's very good living, but he's got a wealthy family, so he's not working. He's taking care of the kids. I assume by a caregiver, he means he's like a stay-at-home dad. Yep. Yeah. The sad truth is that in 10 years of... Let's wait for the siren. In 10 years of practicing family law, I have never met a divorcee who was a female, who was the breadwinner that has a modicum of respect for her caregiver husband. Whatever you think of that, or you want to think about gender equality or whatever and gender roles, um, if she views herself as a breadwinner, it's very difficult for her to respect him as a man. Maybe she got into the marriage where it was, oh, he's got all these things going on or he's such a great writer or he's so smart and all he needs is a little bit of a help. And then, hey, you're 10 years into marriage now and, and dipshit is still sleeping in and taking care of the kids. And, you know, he's basically taking on the role of a housewife. Yeah. Gender roles matter in relationships a lot more than people that want to deny it want to believe mm -hmm. the woke people, the, the, the gender equality people, the LGBTQ community, when they want to discredit gender roles, look, when a man and a woman are together, gender roles naturally take effect mm -hmm. for a million different reasons. And I don't want to get too deep in the weeds with that. Other than to say, in the cases that I've seen, all of them, and I've had dozens where female is the breadwinner, the male who is the stay at home, when I read their text messages, and I read their text messages because I have to, because it's always stuff like this. All the name callings are verbally abusive, all the stuff. She's a bit of a party girl and a big drinker. Yeah, that seems par for the course. That's kind of what I see. Verbally abusive, yeah. You're nothing, you're, you're worthless, you're lazy, you're this and that, and the name calling, he gets vicious, Yeah, vicious. If your partner, who is a man, and you're the breadwinner, is not bringing anything to the table, and it stays like that, you're doomed for to divorce. Yeah. Your marriage is doomed. And that's just how it is. At least, I mean, I'm sure there's exceptions. I'm sure. I'm sure. But in what world does a woman respect a man that contributes nothing financially? And where you try to say, okay... Because basically, traditional gender roles are reversed in this marriage. Mm. She's the breadwinner. He's not. 
he's rearing the children and all that kind of stuff. When a man does it, it's all of the same complaints. It's like, oh, you stay home and do nothing. I want the house clean. I want the dinner made. I want all this stuff. And, you know, they expect all these things spick and span. Yeah. But it's okay because the man is the one that's supposed to go out and conquer and all these things, at least mm -hmm. traditionally. Yeah. When the woman does it and their man is the one that's out there and he has no ability to go out there to conquer and provide, the opinion of that man gradually begins to degrade to the point where it becomes, I'm sure, verbally abusive and all of those things. So what is the remedy? I don't know. I don't know the remedy in that point. I mean, does he have a job? Does he want to work? Does, is, he, is he living off of her? Is he doing all, I, all these are questions that are going to be unanswered. It can work. I've seen it work mm -hmm. in situations where both parties, despite the disparity in incomes, like, oh, this one person, uh, she's making like a $300,000 a year and this guy is working full time for the postal service, but he's putting on his 50 to 60 hours a week and he's like uh, coaching, uh, you know, the kid's softball team or whatever and yeah. doing all these things, but he's busting his ass and in, in trying to provide for the family and maintaining some modicum of uh, respect in her eyes. Um, and she's able to overcome uh, the disparity income analysis because he's putting in just as much as she is. But when what happens is this. When you have a couple and one party works and the other doesn't, the person that is working always, 100% of the time, develops a measure of resentment towards the non-working partner. Yeah. And if it maintains that way for a period of years and it's a flip of gender roles, oh, it gets nasty. Now, when men do it, you know what men do? Men go out and they find other women and they go out and they cheat yeah. and they do whatever they want. And they're verbally abusive to the, their, their wife, but the wife doesn't recognize it because, you know, gender roles and all. And um, they uh, see themselves here and they see their wives there to the point where they lose respect for their wife. And this is when the gender roles are not reversed. I wonder how much worse that is. In this situation where, it, you know, woman to man, and I'm not saying this woman's cheating on him, but she's a party girl. I assume that's probably an element of it. Shocker. I would have assumed, I mean, do you think she would have, at, at one point in time, do you think she was okay with him being? Yeah, when she thought she was going to be Ernest Hemingway because yeah. he's working on his writing career. <laughs> But when she found out he's not yeah. going to be freaking Hemingway or Edgar Allan Poe, yeah. and he's just this dipshit that's like a parading around want, making blueberry pancakes and coming up with a chocolate truffle covered muffins, that's a little disconcerting for a female yeah. that is working and out there doing her thing. Absolutely. It's a mismatch. You're unequally yoked. You are not bringing to the table equally. Mm -hmm. And yeah, staying home and, and, and raising the kids and all, but man... It's difficult to reconcile that in any regard, yeah. especially if she perceives it as being lazy. I wonder if we were to have her here and she were to tell me, I could already say what she's going to, what, what she would say. He's lazy. His hygiene sucks. He sits at home all day and like he, he cooks and like the house is always a mess. And I'm having to pay all the bills and he gets us in his debt and he's running the credit cards and. You know, I don't respect him anymore because he's he's, he's just whatever. I, I, I could hear it ringing in my ears. Mm -hmm. And so is there anything he should be doing right now in terms of his inheritance? No. But if they're getting 
ready to get divorced. Here's what you got to start preparing for. All right, 10 or 14 years old. Who's going to take the kids? The mom. I don't know. She's working. How is she going to do that? How is she going to provide? Um, for the family, how is she going to pay child support while watching the kids full time? 100%. He's probably going to be responsible for the children. She's going to be paying child support and probably alimony. Yeah. He's got that to look forward to if they end up getting a divorce in a community property state. And if he doesn't want to uh, raise the children, if he doesn't want to take them full time or be the primary parent, then, you know, he's going to have to figure that out somehow. But that's consideration number one. That's always the most complicated part of all of this. What happens with the kids? What happens with the custody and visitation? It's difficult to work that out. Yeah. The finances usually always work themselves out. Whatever you guys acquired during marriage, you're going to split down the middle. Retirement accounts, cars, houses, all of those things. Whatever. And here's the thing, when you're when you get married, and this is maybe part of the reason for some of the resentment. Mm -hmm. Every dollar that you make while you were married, unless there is a prenuptial agreement that says otherwise, every dollar that you make is 50% your partners. Mm -hmm. You split it down the middle. So he's benefiting from all of that. So when they get divorced, let's say they're they let's say they've been married for 14 years. Let's because the oldest is 14 yeah. years old. Well, he's going to be entitled in the state of California to alimony until either he passes away or he decides to get remarried. And why would he ever get remarried? It, it worked out so well the first time. <laughs> in addition to that, he's going to get child support based on their incomes, their percentage of time that they spend with the children. There's this whole formula that they go by, and every state's different, but California has a what they call guideline support, and so they figure all of that out. He's going to be getting alimony. He's going to be getting child support. We could split the assets, and his inheritance is untouchable. So I would say there's not really a whole lot that he has to worry about. Yeah. Matter yeah. of fact, he should probably just, if he thinks it's going to go, if he doesn't want to salvage the marriage, just get divorced now. Yeah. There's no reason to wait. Do it now. If he, want to, if he wants to stay married, however, he's going to have to start making some changes with himself. What would you suggest that he change? I mean, being a stay-at-home parent is a job in itself, so I'm not going to discredit that. Well, not to discredit it, because but, I'll tell you yeah. what, I cannot be a stay-at-home parent. There's no effing way <laughs> I could stay at home all day long with the kids, washing them by myself. Whoever does that, you have the patience of a saint. Yeah. How do you do that and keep your sanity? It is beyond, it, it is much easier to do my job than to be a, a stay-at-home parent. Yeah. 100%, I admit. The problem with that is, if she doesn't know that or think that, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what I think. The reality of it, the realities of it doesn't matter. And that could even be true. Yeah. But how many men disparage their wives who are stay-at-home moms because they don't work? Yeah. Do you think that that analysis is any different when, it, when you flip the genders? Because I guarantee you, she's, oh, I'm a stay-at-home, uh, I'm a stay-at-home mom, and, you know, I'm, I'm, or I'm a stay-at-home dad, I'm taking care of the kids. At some point, she's going to be resentful because of all of the things that she has on her plate, on all of the, here's what happens in a marriage. But the resentment can go both ways. I mean, she can be resentful that, if if the roles were switched or even he can be resentful that she gets to go out every day, leave the house. Yeah. 100%. And, 
and he's stuck home with but two kids. He has zero ammunition to yeah. fight back and 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 spout off his resentments. Yeah. You get to go out and be an adult all the time, and I have to be stuck here and, and watching Bluey's Clues or Blue's Clues or whatever and Disney Plus Channel and whatever. And well, they're 10 to 14. I don't yeah. know what they're watching, but yeah. you know, so but they're 10 to 14. It's not that hard to care for 10 to 14. Yeah. Three and four is a little bit different. Totally. But 10 to 14, what is he really doing? Yeah. You're staying home. They could probably make their own grilled cheese sandwiches. They're at school. Yeah. They're at cool for they're they're school for most of the day. Yeah. Um, and so it's a little bit different in this scenario. Yeah. And so what ammunition does he have to come back with her? Because it seems to me like he should have at least six hours every day to do something. Totally. And yeah. maybe he is. I don't know if, if he's not. or, or, or I'm, This is what they said. He may be. But if he's not doing that, then what ammunition does he have to come back at his wife who's out there making it happen? Has all of these, uh, you know, big time responsibilities being the breadwinner, mm-hmm. uh, being successful, living in a posh neighborhood. So she's really successful. And all of the stresses that come with being the breadwinner because it's different. It it has its own issues. It has its own stresses that it causes on on people. And so, yes, the resentment goes both ways, but she's always going to have the upper hand because he is not contributing. She makes the money. And she's probably, he is probably so self-conscious of that that he doesn't have the confidence to even fight back. Yeah. Which is why he accepts and takes all of this verbal abuse that she is spewing his way. Mm-hmm. And so when you are unequally yoked like that, I mean, I've seen it work, but where it works is, you know, it's one thing for the children, like you said, and that's a great point, is one children is one thing for the children to be toddlers, babies, you know, and they need all of this extra attention. But when they're teenagers, yeah. hey man. Why don't you go become Ernest Hemingway then, you know, <laughs> yeah. go work on your career or do something or start a YouTube channel or start a podcast or, or do something with your life to contribute. So totally. not to harp on it too much. That's my analysis of it. But this is kind of a simple question. This really goes more to relationship dynamics about why that's even an interesting inquiry at all. Uh, but let's move on. Oh, All right, so this is the one that wants to be succinct as possible. They want to hear my experience and guidance. Maybe you can relate to uh, my situation. I've been trying to make sense of this myself. All right, so I'm 28. I'm a 28-year-old male. My wife is 34. We've been dating together since 2016. I was 21. We met in 2013. There are no kids involved. We were married late 2018. We loved one another, but marriage was primarily so we could be together for visa purposes. Oh, Mm. perfect. Got it. Okay. My partner and I care for one another. We actively ensure the other is doing well and offer lots of encouragement and companionship. I just do not know if that is all that is needed. Recently, I have gone through the most humiliating experience of my life, and I'm very ashamed. I got too close with my work colleague. Nothing ever happened, and at no point did I ever try to initiate anything with them, but I definitely allowed myself to be in a close position to them, knowing we liked one another. We joined the workplace at the same time and confided a lot with each other and built up a friendship. One night after work, we grabbed a drink, and it felt a little bit too romantic. 
I then felt guilty and then closed down a bit and went quiet. She stormed off, upset. From then on, I noticed she'd distanced herself from me. Our conversation was more regulated, which was the right thing to do. I genuinely really liked them a lot, though. And over time, when I noticed they started to care less, I got really sad, mopey, and desperate for them to show that they cared like before. I would want their attention, and it felt like groveling. I have never been so disappointed in myself for being gross. <sighs> Listen, sir. My first bit of advice is, let me continue before I go all in. I got things to say. Um, this situation really hurt my self-esteem. It's pretty clear now that my priorities are wrong. This was really big for me. And I wonder if I cared more about that situation than what was going on with my connection with my partner. I also don't think I would want to be that way if I was contempt in my marriage. Largely, what I feel now is inadequacy and a fear of missing out. A lot of my 20s have been bouncing around entry-level fast food, debt collection, call center, freight work in order to finance us being together, her flights and her visas, and supporting us. I know having FOMO is normal in a relationship and not necessarily unhealthy, but I have so much anxiety about dating experience and just general fun. Throughout the years, I have had to compromise on holidaying with friends, camping trips, nights out, dating, minus the situation above. I've never entertained any adventures from others. All right. He wants us to view him as this noble person. Yeah. It has the best of intentions. I can tell that my partner's starting to get desperate. I'm trying to be present and giving in our relationship, but she can sense my reluctance. My indecision being prolonged like this isn't fair on her. I don't know what can change in our relationship in particular. We've reached a point where there is not much more compromise than can be made. I don't know what she could even do as I think the problem is me. I feel that marriage is just good enough and I'm comfortable with its familiarity. Other than going for a walk around a local park, getting lunch or a drink, I don't really know if I want to spend much more time with her. I don't really know if I fully appreciate them as much as I should. Our team has made redundant at work just over a month ago. So, oh, they were let go. Leaving my partner would mean that within a short time, I'd have no job, wife, apartment, I would leave, or cat. The cat will get over it. I would live with my friends while I look for work. I've been dealing with depression, ADHD, anxiety, stroke. Oh, give me a break. All right. I need a drink. The fear of missing out. Listen, young man, you're 28 years old. Ness, aren't you 28? You're 28. I'm about to be. Getting old. I know. Not as old as you, though. Well, it goes without saying. <laughs> All right, your wife is 34, you're 28. Y'all got married. Been together since 2016. When you were 21, you met in 2013. Yeah, I've been together for a while. No kids, thank God. Married in 2018. It's been about six years now. Uh, loved one another. So, so it was early 20s. He yeah. was locked down. They got married for visa purposes, although I doubt it because you can't be with somebody for that long only to get married for visa purposes. So let's cut the bullshit. He was in love with her. She was in love with him. This was a relationship. It feels like when he's telling me that, 
that what he's really saying is that now nah, she was nice enough. We were friends. Mm-hmm. She was familiar. Mm-hmm. And he's dramatized. He dramatizes everything in his life to this uh, encounter with a coworker that didn't really go anywhere and that he's self-conscious about it. Guy's got a lot of issues, but he's also 20 years old. So I get it. So at 28 years old, this is the first time in your life where all of your chemical connections in your brain are fully formed. This is the first time really for like the last maybe year or two that you had the ability to exist as a human being as you were going to be for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible time to become self-aware and self-reflective. And part of what happens at 20 years old is you become self-reflective and what am I going to be and what have I been and what did I think I was going to be? And I'm not actually going to be able to get there because I'm, I'm not, well, I always wanted to play pitch for the Dodgers, but I don't throw nearly hard enough. And if I throw my shoulder out many times, I can't throw a ball anymore without it like severe pain. Seriously. Like I got a short arm, everything now. It wasn't in the cards. It was never going to be in the cards. I was never going to be that good. And so this self-reflection happens and it's taking place in his marriage, uh, which may or may not be a good marriage. It sounds like it's pretty boring. He's pretty bored at 20 years old. Fear of missing out. Yeah, you got a long ways to go, buddy. And um, you've been with this lady for the last, since 2013, 11 years. So that means from the age of 17 um, to now, you've been with this lady that's just okay you know, you guys are friendly with each other. That's fine. But you chose her at 17. You just never left. Could that be complacency? Because it, it could have been because of familiarity. Could it be because you just didn't want to venture out? Fine. But at some point, maybe now, you were deciding that you want to venture out. You have a work colleague that you are fond of, that you are curious about. And you've had no ability for the last 11 years to seriously explore other people and types of people and figure out what you like and what you don't like, not just in your sexuality, but in, in, in your personality and the way that you are and the way that you want to be. And maybe you want somebody that's more quiet. Maybe you're a party person. Maybe you want somebody that's more energetic. Maybe you want somebody that's more adventurous. And now here you are, you're at the top of the mountain. You're finally fully formed. And you're deciding that, gosh, I don't think I've really explored myself. Of course you haven't, because you're a child. At 28 years old, you're a child and you're playing grown folks business and you got married to this girl because it helped her out. You guys rationalized yourself that, hey, should we get married? But if I do, you could become a citizen and all this and the visa and fine. All right, do that. Now it's done. The person the client, I've had clients that have legitimately gotten married for visa purposes and they get divorced like a couple of years later and it's no big deal, but they're legitimately, there's no romance involved. Yeah. So let's not pretend that you're only together for visa purposes. You guys are together because you like each other. I met this college professor. She married a gay guy mm-hmm. because it's going to help her get her citizenship. I think she mm-hmm. was like from like Venezuela or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But it was done and they were done and then they got divorced and she got her citizenship and they both lived happily ever after, but it was always a platonic thing. Yeah. The guy was gay. Yeah. I mean, I assume, I think, I don't know. It doesn't (laughs) matter. But the point is, you know, so here you are, you're 20 years old and you met this young lady and she caught your affections and it got a little bit too romantic. And then you pulled back because you were feeling awkward or you over dramatized the moment. And now, You've disappointed her in your eyes somehow. You're self-conscious about it. I don't understand the self-consciousness of that. 
Because how could you be self-conscious about something that you haven't fully thrown yourself into? Yeah. You were clearly reticent about it to begin with. You didn't give her all of you. She hasn't had the opportunity to evaluate 100% of you. She hasn't discredited you as a man, knowing all of the information. She's disappointed that you didn't choose her on that night. And maybe she's a little butthurt about it. She'll get over it. But for you to then turn around and say, now it's giving me all this anxiety and I have all these uh, self-esteem issues, that I guarantee you is not coming from her. It's coming from your lack of having experienced America. Your lack of having experienced other females, other people, other individuals, other situations, other personalities, other lifestyles. You don't know anything. You're 28 years old and you don't know Jack S. I know you don't like when I say S. <laughs> Jack S. <laughs> Family channel. Now you got yourself in a jackpot and you're figuring out whether or not you should get divorced. Well, look, I will just say this. If you're going to get divorced, now is the time. Your wife, being 34 years old, she's sub she's substantially more advanced than you maturity wise you and to be honest you're 28 but you talk like you're 21 years old buddy yeah. and there's a very good reason for that is because you don't know anything you haven't experienced anything if you're having these feelings now at 28 tomorrow you're going to wake up and you're going to be 40 years old and you're going to be in the same marriage and it's not going to be a 6 year relationship it's going to be a uh, what's the math on that I don't know. It's going to be like a, what's 12 plus six? 18. 18. It's going to be an 18 year marriage. And you will have given this lady that you're kind of fond of, like, she's all right. She's fine. You know? Now, listen, it's 100% okay for you to be married and say of your partner that, you know what? They're fine. They're okay. The problem is he doesn't even know what fine is. He hasn't gone out there and experienced yeah. America. That was when I was single. I used to go, I'm, I'm exploring America, all 50 states. And, you know, but you get it out of your system before you get married. Yeah. Because you don't want to get married. And if, if marriage is something that you aspire to do, and not everybody aspires to do that. And for those that reject it, as a societal construct, good for you. I applaud your decision. But for those that aspire for legacy purposes to marry and have children and grandchildren and all of these things, you better be GD sure that you're making the right decision yeah. with this person. Now, at 17, I'll tell you what. When I was 17, I fell in love with the girl that used to go to church. She was a church girl. I was a church guy. And uh, I thought that she was like the love of my life, like the girl of my dreams. She looked like uh, the girl from the Titanic. What was her name? Oh, Kate Winslet. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then one of like our first dates was like, we went to go watch that movie together. And it was like uh, deeply ingrained. I was associated that movie with her. And then she dumped me when I was like 18. And then I was like, always thinking, oh, that was the one that got away. <laughs> And I was thinking that was going to be love of my life. And I was, I was one of the same thing when I was 14. And yeah. I was, it's <laughs> yeah. like, I don't understand why it didn't work out. Whatever. Fast forward. I don't know. How long would it have been? When I was like 33 or 34, 
I met her uh, right before I met my wife, coincidentally. Wow. I came back into contact with her. And it was weird. It was weird. She had aged. Did you just run into each other? or? Uh, no, she had contacted me like through social media. It must okay. have been Facebook or something. Got it. And I uh, said, hey, I'm in town because she was living like in Texas or something. And uh, we went to go have like a just meet up and uh, catch up on old times with no romantic ideations whatsoever. Say, so, hey, I ain't doing nothing. And then uh, ran into her and, you know, she looked relatively the same, just aged and stuff. But she was weird. She was weird. <laughs> she she was not what I remembered. This 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 vision of what I created in my 17-year-old brain. Yeah. Evaluating it as a 33-year-old man, it was not matching expectation. And you know, we had explored the idea of like, oh, maybe we should reconnect and get together, but then after a while I was like, you know what? No, man, I'm good. <laughs> she probably regretted dumping you. I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, she made her decision. But when, when it just goes to show what you think in terms of how you evaluate women at 17 mm -hmm. and what that's going to look like at 33 is two different things. Dominic, damn it, you're 25 years old and you don't know anything. Whoever is your ideal person right now, you know, she might be fine. She might be. But she also, in five years, might not be the thing. She might not be. And you got time to figure that out and explore and do all of those things. Dominic's heard me talk talk about this long enough now. You it, got it ingrained in your brain, Dominic? <laughs> <laughs> the point being, he doesn't know what he's like. He hasn't experienced all of those things. Or he says that this lady is fine. But when I say that my wife is fine mm -hmm. for me when i say that it means so much more mm -hmm. because i have surveyed the landscape and i know what i wanted and i know what i want yeah. and i have no curiosity about what's out there the thought of me going back out there and trying to like figure out you know what i just say i would just stay single yeah no there is no chance you got it good it is so unappealing to me, the thought of that, but the only reason I could get there is because I got it all out of my system. Yeah. You know, I, I had those, I, I've made my, my mistakes. I've explored, I've done these things. I've grown as a man and as a person and I developed my likes and my dislikes. Yeah. And what I like is very specific. I'm very ingrained. Nobody's changing me for shit. When my wife met me, there was no changing who I was, who I was. I was already what I was going to be. And she met me like 35 or 34 or 35. I don't remember. It was 2015. <laughs> um, and what I am then is who I am now and is who I'm going to be in 20, 30 years. And she was like 29. So she was coming out of her fully formed stage. And I could tell you with all 100% confidence that what she is now is what she was back then and it's not going to change. I mean, she's older now. She's getting older. Yeah. But she has permission to do that with me. She, Her looks could degrade because they don't degrade to me. They could have degraded the rest. But when I take her out into the nightclubs, or we don't go to nightclubs. You sure do. You guys dance together crazy. Well, <laughs> when we get the chance to get out. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have your fun but that doesn't ever you know when it happens we, we go out and we go party but she has permission to get old without consequence with me yeah. i have permission to get old and and fall out of shape and and 
whatever is going to happen to me as I get older. Mm-hmm. And But you get there by going on your journey and figuring out what your partner is going to look like. Yeah. Because for you to say, Ness, for you to tell me at 27 years old that, oh, this person is, she's okay, she's fine. That means that you're searching for something that you're not seeing. Yeah. But for me to say it at 43, what I'm telling you is she's exactly what I was looking for and exactly what I want. Mm-hmm. And there's no change in my mind. And the only distinction is the journey. The journey, and I don't know anything about your journey, but <laughs> I don't want to know. The, the, the only <laughs> distinction is, the only distinction is having gone through the battlefields and being having your ideologies about the opposite sex or the same sex or whatever it is tested through fire and making your mistakes and breaking a few hearts and having your heart broken a few times. Mm -hmm. This guy's anxieties, his self-esteem issues, I guarantee you are rooted in his inexperience. (sighs) Do you think I have self-esteem issues? I have none. Mm I don't no. give a shit. Do you think I got a weird voice? I got a weird voice. Do you think I, I have weird interests? I got weird interests. I don't get, I don't give a S. I am who I am. And what I am is what I'm going to be. And I, I make no apologies for it. Self-esteem issues are, I hesitate to say this, but I feel like self-esteem issues are an issue of maturity that in some people never gets weeded out. Mm-hmm. But if you talk to older folks, when they get older, myself at 43, mm-hmm. Perhaps yourself at 28, whatever insecurities you had at 18, they don't follow you into your forties unless you've never dealt with them. But when you talk to people in their eighties, you think they give an S about (laughs) how you think their suspenders are falling (laughs) over their shoulders. Come on, man. So I don't know if it's the goal in life to get to that point, but self-esteem issues, when somebody leads with that, when they say that that's the reason that they're considering leaving their spouse, I have to believe that there is development issues there, that there is issues in maturity, that there is issues in finding yourself. Now, this other stuff, this guy's dealing with depression, ADHD, anxiety, stress, trauma, and family events. You've just described 99% of the world's population, sir. So stop (laughs) dramatizing all of your issues. It's not this serious. Look, I'll take you out. We'll go out and we'll have a beer. We'll have a heart to heart. We'll have a talk. I'll point you in the direction of some unsuspecting woman and, and send you off. The point is, <laughs> you need to live your life, sir. Yeah. If you're thinking about divorce now, the best thing you could do for your life is to cut the ties now. Do it now. Do it now. Because if, you, if you're having those thoughts now and you're having this FOMO thing, which is something that happens within experience. I have zero FOMO. Yeah. I know what I'm missing out on. I'm good with it. I'm good with it all. I have no desire to go back into that pool of filth. You could, you could have it. You could have it. Yeah. But if you're feeling that now, you're going to wake up, you're going to be 40 years old, and it's not going to have gone away because you would have never dealt with it. And your wife, your poor wife is going to be at that point, 46 years old. And you guys are getting older. And, you know, she 
deserves to be with somebody that is with her to be with her, not because of visa purposes, mm -hmm. not because he found it convenient. She deserves to be with somebody that she has explored the landscape and she's made her selection yeah. and there's no need to revisit it. So do it now. Cut the ties now. What are you going to lose out on? It sounds like you guys don't have a whole lot together. And him being 28 years old, I mean, they've been married for six years. It's a short-term marriage. Cut your ties. Cut your ties. Go live life. Live happily ever after. What do you got to say to that, Ness? I mean, he's going to go live life, experience what he needs to experience. Yeah, I think if he's feeling that now, he's that's not going anywhere. That feeling is not going anywhere. If anything, if he were to stay in it, he's always going to wonder, what if? And that's no way to live. Yeah. Yes. So I think we are fully settled on that question. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been recording now for two hours and 38 minutes. Whether or not it ends up to be exactly that time depends on Dominic's editing skills. We will see. He has been duly praised for his editing work on the his one month as the producer of the Tilt Lawyer podcast. He's getting a lot better and, and a lot familiar with our style of show, and he's starting to make it his and bring his own style to it. I especially liked when he, I talked about my wife sounding like a pterodactyl and, he, and then. <laughs> threw in a pterodactyl? No, he threw in a puppy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean a puppy? I said pterodactyl, sir. <laughs> He's covering you. Yeah. He's covering you. And then there was a point in the show, there was a point in the show where I was like, hey, I was making fun of his, his choice of drink. So I put, we're, we're going to have some Templeton rye with some Diet Coke because. Dominic needs to stir it with his tampon or something or, whatever, <laughs> or, or he needs a little umbrella. And then he flashed a picture of, of himself with a drink I with a little that. umbrella. That was great. But that then I'm like, great. Hey Dominic WTF man. Like it's like he's sitting standing at the gym. Is that your gym <laughs> selfie? Are you flexing your biceps, sir? <laughs> Is that your with Tinder your profile umbrella. picture <laughs> with this fruity umbrella drink? <laughs> oh, that was great. Oh, but I'm very pleased with the direction that the show was taken in it. Uh, for all of you that have stayed with us this long, thank you so much for staying with us. Yes. I know we got a lot to say, it's, I'm, and I, I appreciate it so much if you're listening in your cars, if you're listening at the gym, if you're listening at work. Um, people told me that. They fall asleep to you. There's this law firm in Detroit. I know there's people that said that, <laughs> but there's people that said they have this law firm in Detroit, and they say, I just have you on in the background because it's so soothing. He's like, oh, well, thank you. Wow. So what she basically said is that I sound like I, the more that I talk, I'm going to put them to sleep. <laughs> I don't know if they take that as a compliment or, any, or a compliment. something else. You but, got the radio voice. Well, among other things, when I do my intro, Ileana said that it sounded like a porn intro. <laughs> you sounded like the 1-800-SEX-HOTLINE. Hey, call the Tilted Lawyer podcast for in-depth conversation about your feelings <laughs> and expectations. Well, mom thought when she first heard your intro when you say, and join me, she thought, she, she thought you said, enjoy me. <laughs> she's like did he just say enjoy me like, what no, the hell no, no. this is a family show <laughs> by oh, the way man. by the way mom had thoughts for dominic she said hey he should do this this and that and like well why don't you write dominic a letter you uh, should write him an email and give him all of your critiques it's like i'm gonna send him some links about these other podcasts and he should get some ideas like yeah do all of that <laughs> And she will. Yeah. She will do it. But with all of that, folks, thank you so much for listening. We will see you guys next week when we're going to discuss.
the Christopher Watts episode. Uh, we've been teasing that now for a couple of weeks, but really, I mean, that's an older case. It happened in 2018. What we're really going to get to the bottom of is whether or not Nicole Kessinger should be brought up on charges for her complicity in the, the conspiracy to murder uh, Christopher Watts' family. And uh, that's going to be a deep episode, but we're going to hit that next week. Until then, we see you guys. We will see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.